Hey there, everybody! <laughs> and welcome to Cinema on Tap, your weekly movie podcast. 2024 with a, version. Yeah, 2024 version with a refreshing selection of movie reviews and industry topics on tap for discussion. As always, I am Scott Lenz, joined by my friend and drinking buddy, Christian Ubius. Christian, it's 2024. Yes. We made it. We Somehow. Welcome. Um, I am off to a pretty rough start to 2024. I had a, I had something stolen out of my garage. I got a they parking. They got into your garage? Yeah, because it was left up unexpectedly when I was out of town. My theory is that somebody somehow opened my garage because I know we closed it before we left, but neither here nor there. I got a parking ticket today. That uh, wow. Yeah, so you know we're we're stumbling out of the gate, but my optimism for this year is not diminished. How's your 2024 beginning? So, Scott, I realize that the first movie I have seen in 2024 is Zoe 102. So it's off to a great start, is what you're saying. The movie is, like, it, it's unquestionably a movie that you put on in the background as you're, like, I don't know, banging a stick against the ground. Now, Christian. Yes. Why would you be banging a stick against the ground as your primary activity? Well, why would you be watching Zoe 102? That's a better question than the one I asked. Of course, <laughs> we're not here to talk about 2024 because we have 51 more weeks to talk about 2024. We are here today to talk about 2023, the year which of course just ended and bestowed upon us a wonderful year in film. And we'll how be sharing... How many movies have you seen in the past two weeks? How many movies have I seen in the past two weeks? Now, that is a good question. Are you going to give me the full stats? Um, let's see here. The last two weeks... What was we? We have to go back in time, Christian. We have to look at the calendar. No. Uh, we'll say starting December twenty fourth, Christmas sure, Eve. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, since Christmas Eve, I have watched one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten movies. I believe so. I've seen two. Good, good job to you, I suppose. I rewatched Barbie on the twenty fifth. Didn't log it, but my mom wanted to watch it with me, and I watched Zoe one hundred and two. Well. You should be disappointed, as I already told you earlier today, when that you I told me... I should be ashamed of myself. You were not doing any cramming, even when I was specifically asking you to watch movies, Christian. You didn't specifically ask me to watch anything. I, well, we have a policy here of watching movies on each other's top ten lists, which you did not fully abide by, although I do understand why. But also, I did say you should watch Polite Society, and I don't think you watched Polite Society, Christian, which is a great movie that is also not on my top ten list. But I had a quick. stomach flu, and that kind of... I feel like if I hadn't had that stomach flu, I would have actually tried to fit in a couple more movies. But then that stomach flu, and being so weak that you couldn't get out of bed, kind of made, like, you know, why am I going to do this? Playing the stomach flu card, a classic maneuver that we're going to walk past now as we actually talk into 2023. I'm, I'm glad you're sure. better. I'm glad you're well and that Thank we can you. record this podcast looking at each other right. in the face. That's true. So 2023 in movies, Christian, at just at first glance, mm -hmm. what is your general opinion on the year? I want to talk about some of the some of the quick, you know, highlights too, but I'm curious just how you feel about the last year in movies. Well, I think a lot of people know this, so I'm pretty sure I have mentioned it on this podcast. I moved to LA in 2020, which was full on dead set pandemic LA, Hollywood capital, closed down. It 
now this 2023 was the first year where I feel like I fully took advantage of being in one of the movie capitals of the world. I went to so many different repertory screenings. I went to Q&A screenings. I, we did a red carpet premiere together. We did several different film festivals together. I hung out with friends from work. I met people in the industry. I was able to talk with people and meet directors and meet or, or, or hear writers speak on what projects it is that they have just done, hear inspirations and meet up and coming actors. And it, um, what's the, best way i guess to synchronize all that it, it it felt like great something i did notice the ratings that i gave movies was actually a little bit lower than what i normally give during a year and i think the reason for that was i had a broader spectrum of film to work with so if i had seen for example every 2020 movie in a theater maybe ratings would have been different i i, I grade those movies differently i stand by my top 10 so of that time, and I love those movies still, and I put them on par with so many of the other movies now, but undoubtedly the experiences of being in a movie theater have shaped how I have seen and rated and will discuss the movies we're going to talk about today. I agree with you on that last point for sure. Looking at, uh, we, we've been kind of comparing lists the last couple of weeks as we've been building to this episode, and it is really interesting to see that the movies on our top 10 lists are all, for the most part, movies that we saw in theaters, some of which we saw multiple times. And that is something that is far more normal now than it was in 2020 when we were not... Well, I guess we did begin this podcast in 2020. I, I sometimes lose the timeline, but we're getting back to normal, seeing movies in theaters, and those movies are the ones that end up on our lists. The stuff that's going to streaming now is not as uh, high quality always or prestige even. Like The stuff that has some weight behind it is getting put in a theater, which is awesome. And we did see some of that reflected in major ways at the global box office in 2023. We got past $9 billion at the global box office, which Last is... time it happened was 2019. Yeah, and that, that was coming off of... I think it was a five-year run. I was looking at box office mojo earlier. A five-year run of getting past $11 billion. So still some ground to make up in the post-COVID world of seeing movies, but we are certainly getting back to what we had before the pandemic. Of course, that was led by uh, Barbenheimer, which was what probably people will look back on this year and remember as this signature movie-going event of 2023. Not only were those movies the number one and three, respectively, at the global box office, but they dominated cultural conversation before they came out and since, and both are expected to be nominated pretty heavily at the Oscars. They already picked up Golden Globe nominations. That's happening shortly after we record this I, episode. I do think, though, that they've also given rise to auxiliary conversations surrounding other things. I think I had so many people talk to me about movies, not just Barbenheimer, without me needing to prompt them about that. Everyone you know probably has an opinion on either May, December, or Saltburn. You know, there, there are... Well, I would say everybody I know has an opinion on Barbie and Oppenheimer, but maybe not May, December, and Saltburn. Like, I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording. I did start talking with a couple, my boss and another coworker, uh, via Zoom call, of course, about Saltburn today, and my boss hadn't even heard of it. Um, but my coworker had watched it, so we were talking about it. So I feel like those are still being discovered despite being on streaming services. Right, but the fact that people who may not always watch movies are discovering something, are discovering something that is not what they would normally be ingesting in terms of film is great, yeah. is exciting. Um, I, I 
feel like I actually made an effort to watch TV shows in 2022. I feel like 2023. Uh, don't do this. <laughs> don't do this. Great. It's TV. my best bit, Christian. Great TV is great TV. <laughs> and this year, I I watched The Last of Us, which I loved. I watched Absolutely fantastic show. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the last season, which was amazing. Absolutely fantastic show. Ted Lasso, which to me was disappointing. I, I liked it. Not as good as the other seasons, of course, but um, I liked it. And I think I binged The Mandalorian to try and keep up, and then after that, it just gave up. I'm like, I can't, I can't, what? Oh, and The Bear, The Bear, of course, The Bear oh, of season course. two. Shout out to The Bear, our King Jeremy Allen White. Um, King in many different ways. Uh, it, by that, that I mean... <laughs> What's that mean, Christian? <laughs> King of TV, and honestly, doing pretty well in film for me. He also had a, some... Uh, he was in a Calvin Klein ad campaign that became public today, January fourth. Uh, which, if you haven't seen it, it's good for him. Good for him and uh, the rest of us in a certain way. Just gonna put that out there. Because because he's in his underwear. Yes, and still in the iron claw shape. <laughs> uh, I, I think my favorite tweet, but this was several months ago, when you <laughs> seeing pictures of Jeremy Allen White shirtless is like kind of funny because now you realize they can never take his shirt off in the bear because it would make no sense for any chef to look like that <laughs> I, I was actually thinking about i was thinking about that today in the wake of seeing the iron claw i was thinking about how carmy can never have some kind of depressing shower scene because he's going to be jacked and nobody is going to know why he got jacked but that, hey when you cut vegetables <laughs> oh yeah all that stress really forms the abs uh, you know what was number two in between Barbenheimer Christian? Mario. Mario! A movie that I like. A movie that gave a movie, you a headache. A movie that gave me an existential crisis, but okay, you can, Okay, look. This is another <laughs> bit that you do that every movie is giving you an existential crisis, and I don't um, fully get okay, that. Okay, Christian. That is not a bit that I do. That is uh, something I somewhat lifted from a podcast we both listened to, but I, I rarely have existential crisis, crises about movies. Mario actually did give me one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the downfall of the MCU is another big trend in 2023. Of course, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 was a big success. Okay, look, but the rest of the MCU's output was not, not nearly as financially successful I or don't understand as they used to. I actually don't fully understand it because Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania comes out and it's atrocious. and it, like, like, it, It's truly ugly. It's a sin to behold. And then right after that... It's better that, than the Mario movie. Um, <laughs> we, um, I feel great about no, that um, opinion. No, it, it's not... And then right after that, we we were like, oh, well, Guardians Volume 3, we have faith in James Gunn, who is taking over DC. People love it. Yep. And then somehow, between people loving Guardians Volume 3 and the Marvels, I guess Secret Invasion was in there somewhere, didn't touch a second bit. That um, is the big piece, is that these, it's the TV shows combining with the movies, where, yes, Guardians is a big hit. And it, if that was the only thing, we had a big hit in Guardians, followed up by a flop in the Marvels, people might not say the MCU is falling apart. But with the combination of the TV shows that are being watched by fewer and fewer it people... It was hated. It was... Yeah. Full, and I know that yeah. you don't feel that way about it. I know that you think it's fine, but it was so hated that... Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a like a de- okay, like a decent... Like Secret Invasion specifically, it was like okay, decent experience. And I'm sort of a, like, not alone in that, but... I'm a little bit of an outlier there because most people really disliked it. And I honestly kind of can't blame them in some ways. I feel like but, a lot of the critiques were fair. And you know what? The Marvels, the Marvels isn't bad. Like, the Marvels, I'm not, I'm, I'm like, no, it's not. I actually think there are several, like, really poor things about the Marvels. Yep. But the, I, it, it's one of those where we, we just have stopped caring. 
And if we, the, the MCU is not going to, or, or obviously Marvel Studios isn't going to fully go away. If Marvel can just give me like one, like pretty fun movie a year, down. I don't, yeah. I don't care about the story anymore. And I think that a lot of people are with me on that. Yeah, we'll see what happens. There's only famously, no, fam- not famously, but notably only one MCU movie coming out this year. Daredevil. I mean, not Deadpool. Daredevil. Deadpool. Deadpool. I think. Is Daredevil a TV show coming out this year? I I'll watch that. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch that. Deadpool yeah. three. It'll be Deadpool three with a few TV shows coming to Disney Plus. So we'll see how that goes for Marvel. The the newest one is I Echo, think, which comes out shortly, sometime in January. So. I think Deadpool three will make money. I think and it will I too. So we'll see. I'm interested in. Okay, look, what you put in this outline is Adam Driver fights dinosaurs. You have cut uh, cut the line on a lot of actual topics here, Christian. I'm you, so sorry. Please keep going. <laughs> you dovetailed the MCU conversation into my final note. I did humorously include Adam Driver fought dinosaurs uh, in reference to the disastrous film 65. Wasn't even a fun movie. No, really wasn't. But other, other notable things here, Christian. Uh, chime in as much as you'd like. But, of course, WGA and SAG had their first joint strike in over 60 years, which... which was yeah. I mm, radically affected the business and will affect this year 2024 in, uh, in very much so interested to see how that goes also hate the fact that it happened do you think Hollywood was due for a reckoning yeah not sure what that is going to mean also not sure how that affected the box office well actually I do know Dune Part 2 didn't come out uh, and there yeah I mean people like a movie like the Marvels a lot of people did chalk off the strikes at least partially uh, as the a reason, Brie it didn't make as much money. Couldn't go out there, and like Iman Iman Bilani Bilani was known in the Disney go out Plus, there. yes, and, like, and, and she didn't get a chance to put her name out there to people who didn't know her from the show. It, so exactly the the thing that I will also say about this, and and I want to go back to Dune Part Two. Dune Part Two would have undoubtedly been the talk of the fall. It would have been a huge movie. It's going to be in March when it comes out. The Bike Riders was pushed. Challengers would have made money. I mean, I we'd, think... be, we'd be talking about Zendaya getting an Oscar nomination right now if it came out when it was supposed to and it's like fall right about to start I, award season release time. I know some people who edited Challengers. I am unsure based on what they've told me about Challengers how I feel or my anticipation about the movie. However... It, it's it's the, the box office was not what it could have been despite it being over nine billion. It wasn't, and so we'll see how that goes into twenty twenty four. A few just my kind of concluding thoughts in twenty twenty three. I honestly think this was an incredible year for movies. As yes. I was trying to put my hundred percent agree. As I was trying to put my top ten list together, I was having um, just so much trouble fitting movies in because I kept. Swapping things around, trying to make things look right, and I will say... You my, texted me how stressed you were, like, eight I, times about making I've this list. I've been stressed all day long, and I'll tell you, my number one movie has been settled for a very long time, but everything after it has been so hard to, to, to fit together, but... Thank you for not including the wonderful story of Henry Sugar on your list. Christian, let me talk about the wonderful story of Henry Sugar when it's time to talk about the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. It's, it's not a feature-length film. The... There, okay, just final thoughts on 2023 before we start talking about our favorites here. Number one, major filmmakers were all over the release here. Regardless Bradley of Cooper, the quality of their films. Martin Scorsese, yeah. Greta Gerwig. Christopher Nolan, Wes Anderson, Emerald Fennell, David Fincher, Ari Aster, Yorgos Lanthimos, Hayao Miyazaki, Sofia Coppola, Todd Haynes, Ben Affleck. I mean, there were all kinds of major directors out <gasps> making movies. Plus, <laughs> you like Ben Affleck. I like Ben Affleck. You were like, 
black I think that was so funny plus uh, people in sort of that emerging mode of their career coming out old time master like Ridley Scott Michael Mann Scorsese some of these like older filmmakers still putting out good quality films uh, just so many great filmmakers putting out work this year and tons of like fun franchise movies too I mean and tons new, of movie stars yeah tons of movie stars just a great year for movies I really really love this year and I can't wait to talk about some of our favorites sure from this year. So here is how this is going to go. Christian, you and I often, as we make our top 10 lists, struggle with fitting everything in. And so we like to make top 20 lists. We list off the honorable mentions first to just take, start talking about some movies, getting some names out there. And then we'll dive in more deeply to the movies in our top 10 lists. We had a couple of crossovers this year, which is uh, fun to see. Notably, my number one and your number one both appear on the other person's list in in uh and you know not not number one but we do share our number one films of the year and it's i'm pretty sure of all of the movies on your list there's only a couple that i wasn't as big a fan of as you there's others that i would have loved to have fit it on if it wasn't such a strong year for movies uh, any final notes there christian before we jump into your number 20 no, 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 no. All right, Christian, fire away with your 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 twenty through sixteen, and I'll share mine. Cool. My number twenty silent night action film directed by John Woo, set during well, basically two different Christmases, told almost entirely without dialogue. You hurt my feelings. Nicole Holubson are teaming up with Julia Louis Dreyfus. Very small movie about basically marital problems, but also incredibly funny dealing with how something that can seem so small actually means a world of difference. Theater Camp, which is a movie we saw at Sundance, which is the only movie on my list that I didn't see in theaters, which is just a hilarious way playing on all the tropes that every single theater kid knows growing up, from how annoying you are when you are rehearsing for an audition to how annoying you are while a show is taking place. Bottoms, wonderful, wonderful lesbian comedy that came out this year from the director and writer of Shiva Baby. Um, and it honestly solidifying to me, yes, Rachel Sennett is in this, but primarily Ayo Edeberry as a star. Operation Fortune, Roost Gare is Guy Ritchie's wonderful, fantastic riff on James Bond that a critic has included on his top 10 list of the year. Which critic? I sent it to you. I know I sent it to you. Which, I know you sent I sent I'm, it. I'm forgetting which critic. Uh, um, <laughs> let me look it up while you um, read your list. Operation Fortune is a riff on James Bond in the same way that I am a riff on the star of that movie, Jason Statham. Am I 20 through 16? First, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, at number 20. The last movie I watched in doing some 2023 homework, and in any other year, this is on my top 10 list. A really wonderful adaptation of Judy Bloom's book with wonderful wonderful performances leading the way from abby ryder fortson and rachel mcadams um number 19 for me poor things yorgos lanthimos's newest with emma stone at the center giving perhaps the performance of the year in a very wild and crazy but thought-provoking and beautiful movie and, and beautiful in some kind of gross ways <laughs> 18 asteroid city wes anderson's not latest because of course he had a collection of short films come out but his latest feature, a movie that has really, um, I, it, one that I always approach with warmth in my heart, even as I did not fully grasp it like I do a lot of his other films. A movie that I wanted to rewatch and didn't get around to, and so it lives here. Uh, 17 for me, Barbie, because it's friggin' Barbie. And number 16, 
how to blow up a pipeline, which is uh, a, a very interesting movie. One which takes a nonfiction book about radical social action and forms a narrative around its ideas. Very, very interesting movie that might have gotten me put on a watch list for watching, but what can I say? I had a good time. Christian, your 15... Owen Gleiberman is the critic. Shout out to Owen Gleiberman. He is, uh, he is an interesting guy. <laughs> uh, Christian, on to your 15 through 11. So 15, Priscilla, which is the newest movie written and directed by Sofia Coppola about the life of Priscilla Presley. Very quiet and very just dark without needing to be allowed to do so. How to Blow Up a Pipeline, I'm right there with you. Story about radicalization, but also the different facets of people that might come together and have ultimately decided that this is the step that they should take. John Wick Chapter 4, because you know what? It was awesome. I'm so proud of you for this, Christian. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I've got Suzume, which is the latest from the director Makoto Shinkai, who is one of my favorite animators working in Japanese animation. Wonderful story about a woman who falls in love with a man who turns into chair. Honestly, he's got some of the best premises ever. And then an 11 Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 because it's cheeky and also fun and also weird and also awesome. And also, I want to know how the story ends. Amen, brother. There we go. My number 15 was The Killer, David Fincher's latest with Michael Fassbender as the world's most uh, arrogant and self-centered assassin with a hilarious running monologue and a pretty dark critique of modern-day capitalism in our world. Number 14, I also had Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, a movie that I absolutely loved. And again, in any other year, this is like top five for me, but um, yeah, just one that I not only loved, but also there's just like every like all of the ladies in this movie, they really... Um, Shout out to the ladies of Mission Impossible. You, you've stolen my heart, uh, and I would like it back. Uh, I need to go find it when I see part two. Number 13, Past sure. Lives. Celine Song's debut um, featuring a love triangle of sorts over a couple of different periods. Just another one of those movies I wish I could have rewatched because I loved it so much on first view, and it didn't stick with me in the way that it did stick with some other folks over this year, but just achingly tender beautifully written beautifully acted movie number 12 may december todd haynes latest which uh got a lot of discussion over the last few weeks after it dropped on netflix uh featuring natalie portman playing an actress who goes to uh, do some research and portray a, a couple where the woman essentially preyed upon the the now husband in her marriage when he was a teenager and she was in her 30s and married and they now have their own family years later very interesting movie uh especially about the idea of performance both how actors perform and how we perform in our everyday lives about abuse about uh the ways that we construct our identity about stunted development and arrested development and, and um, about just, performance uh, and yes how to turn it on and how to turn it off and about how mirrors are a fantastic filmmaking device and at number 11 i also had priscilla in this section here for me my perhaps my favorite Sofia Coppola movie I think is like incredibly well done this is the hardest cut for me but again I just feel really great about my top 10 so shout out to Sofia and uh, also big shout out to Kaylee Spaney playing Priscilla Presley and Jacob Lordy's take on Elvis I loved their uh, their chemistry together I loved their performances in that movie so number 11 for me Christian we now go to you uh, to Spend a little more time with one of the filmmakers who appeared in your 20 through 11. Because uh, yes. this is someone who had two films released this year. And I'll, I'll let you introduce that movie because you'll find out who it is right in the title. 
So it's Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. <laughs> yeah, it is. Look, this is a fun, this is a well-constructed war film. I used fun. I don't know why I said fun. It's not fun at all. <laughs> I was going to say, not not particularly fun, but well-constructed, yes. This is a well-constructed uh, uh, film about Jake Gyllenhaal and Dar Salim who star as an American military agent in Afghanistan, and uh, Dar Salim stars as Ahmed, who is the translator that he is using, who basically saves his life, and then ends up needing to go into hiding, and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is trying to get him out of there. It is based on a real-life story. It is not a particularly big movie. And I think that's what I like about it. It feels very straightforward in how it's telling the facts uh, just about the relationship that was able to develop in the most traumatic of circumstances. I loved both performances. It's one of the per times where Jake Gyllenhaal's loudness to me is really, really working. And Dar Salim is giving such a nuance, such a quiet, such a subtle turn, given someone who is truly fearing for his life within this situation and is needing to try and stifle that in order to care for his family. I thought the sounds were incredible. I thought the the, the um, weird, and, and, and I'm saying weird because it, it's truly awkward staging, walking through the, the, the mountain scenes were tense as needed to be. I enjoyed it a good chunk. And I came out of this thinking, this is not just well-constructed, but it has stayed with me over the year. I watched this on a plane, so my apologies, because this is a, <laughs> uh, it's a big action film. It's a big war film. Watching it on a plane, not the best venue, perhaps. Although sometimes those kinds of action movies go down easy on a, on a uh, cross-country flight. I will say, I am fully with you on Dar Salim's performance. I think he is almost underused by the movie. Um, if this were to be a movie that was campaigning for awards, which it, it does not have that, those ambitions, uh, Hall would be campaigning in leading actor and Salim in supporting actor. It's more of Hall's movie. But I was definitely more drawn towards Dar Salim. Absolutely. And, and uh, the, just the character, because I think what The Covenant does well is that it, it doesn't make I'm, it... I'm sorry, what's The Covenant? Guy Ritchie's The Covenant does so well. It doesn't just focus on uh, Gyllenhaal and the American soldiers with him, but it really does have an interest in the Afghani uh, interpreter working with him and, and wanting to get this guy and his family to safety. I think, honestly, the movie may have worked better if it was focused, like, if it swapped, where Salim's interpreter was the, the lead, lead character. And I, I would probably agree with you. This, um, the, I, I know that you find... It weird my fascination with Guy Ritchie movies. I, I really do, <laughs> but it's, it's you know, you, I, you do you. It it it's so odd how, what genres he wants to work in. Were, did you did you watch? Um, oh frick! What's the movie that he did two years ago? And it had Jason uh, Statham in it. Oh, Wrath of Man, which I have not seen. Wrath of Man is not the gentleman. Operation Fortune and the gentleman, though they are basically much cousins more, of each other, yeah, much more related tonally, are are still different. They're they're weird takes on criminal underground and spies. They're I mean that's quirkier. how like, Richie started out with Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, exactly like British crime comedy, and Snatch, and yes. Snatch, yeah, and before that he directed Aladdin, which you know is it, it's just. just like, 
wild to me. You know, this is a man who's a writer-director for hire, and I love that about him. So I, I'm in, and I think that every time I watch a Guy Ritchie movie, I'm in for a tight script and a good time. So that is one of the main things that I recommend to other people. It does also have some of my favorite action scenes of the year. The There's a big shootout at the beginning of the movie that gets them in the situation where Gyllenhaal is, uh, you know, they're eventually on the run. Uh, really impressively staged stuff, I, I gotta say. Even watching on my phone on a plane. <laughs> All right, let's move on to your number 10. My number 10 is Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a, a movie I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with. Of course, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by him and Eric Roth, based on the David Grand nonfiction book about the Osage murders that uh, happened in 1920s in Oklahoma and the uh, forming of the FBI that happened in the wake of many of these murders. Of course, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone as a married couple at the center of a lot of these murders with Robert De Niro in a key supporting role as William Hale, the man who was behind uh, one of the only people convicted for many of these murders. I was trying to think, as, as I formed this list, I really was trying to go by the principle, what movies have stuck with me, whether I watched them in the last couple of weeks or whether I watched them at the beginning of the year, what movies have stayed with me throughout 2023 and really defined this year for me? And I think Killers of the Flower Moon really fits that criteria. I love Martin Scorsese, uh, of course, uh, I've talked about my love for his movies previously, but I just am so impressed by this massive three and a half hour film. But like, despite that to me, there there were some moments of the, ner- the narrative feeling a little bloated, perhaps a little long in, in parts, but even so, I, I just found the his approach to making this film so impressive. And uh, famously, it was sort of rejiggered to focus, uh, take focus from the FBI and put focus onto Molly Burkhart and Ernest Burkhart, the Gladstone and DiCaprio characters, and putting a little bit more of the focus on the people of the Osage Nation. I think a lot of great conversations happen around this movie in terms of who is the lead character, where does the focus lie, what is our point of view, and I'm glad that we got this version of the movie. And of course, an Osage filmmaker might have given even more attention to the native peoples in this movie, but I think Scorsese is really making a movie for like mainstream America or even a movie for white America shall we say this isn't that mainstream of a film I don't think so uh, I mean this is a Martin Scorsese movie and he kind of makes like he of course some of his movies are not hits but like he I don't, I, I don't know if I entirely agree with that but maybe what I'm saying is that like this is a movie starring primarily white people because it's sort of directed at white people and encouraging the country, white or not, not to forget this period of history. The, the ending that this movie uses, which I don't want to even spoil if you still haven't seen it, but uh, the way that they end the movie, uh, there's a little bit of a time jump from the, uh, the murders and the trial that happens after it. And it is just such a gut punch when you realize what Scorsese is doing, the way that he's trying to wrap up some of the themes that he's been working with and connect it to the modern world, even without jumping to the modern world. Um, there's a little snippet that could be modern, I think it is, but um, it, it's a massive, lengthy, uh, epic undertaking of history that I think is so impressively and incredibly well done. 
And I'm curious to see how it stacks up with his greatest films in 5, 10, 15 years from now, after he's gone even, because of course he's now in his 80s, but really curious to see the staying power that Killers of the Flower Moon has, because I think it is a great success, even if it's not perhaps his the best film he's ever made, in my opinion, but even so, my number 10 of the year. Look, I think this movie is well-crafted. The more that I think about it, I do have some moral issues with the film that I, it, it itself is trying to grapple with because I do need to wrestle with the fact that a good chunk of the time that we spend with the Osage is watching the Osage suffer and I do want to wrestle with the fact that he ends this movie basically by stating that he is not the correct person to tell the story or at least that was one of my readings of the ending and I, I, I can't help but think if you knew this, then why then why still tell it? And I know that people have different reactions to it, but it is one of those you I think he thinks he has focused too much on the white people, but that is the only way he could tell this movie. I also want to know if you knew that, why not try and shift focus? And I struggle with all of those questions where I don't want to deny the craft. I don't want to deny how effective it is in being punishing and showing how awful the stage of history is. And yet also, could there not have been a way to better position the Osage? Could there not have been a way to better uh, not give us a happy ending? But to stray from being another white man telling a story about a different group in a way that is centering more the white characters. I think in, in many respects, like, that is honestly the, the one of the best conversations that's come out of this movie is who's making movies in Hollywood and why. Because on the one hand, Martin Scorsese is one of the few people who can get $200 million from Apple Studios, or like from a movie studio right now, to make an epic historical undertaking. Yes, but he's, and that's not even necessarily... he's also the man who is able to get the rights to a movie, get Final Cut to it, and give it to a different filmmaker. And the reason I know that is because he did that with Kitty Green and The Assistant. And so it's, it, it is like, a yes, he can get that money, he can get the Scorsese name behind it, he can get the funding for it. Then, then if you can do all of those things and you know that you're not the one who is best positioning this... Um, so, I mean, the assistant was made for less than $2 million. And I know what you're getting at. But, like, you the, know the, what I'm getting the at. The point is that, like, or a different writer worked with, uh, worked with people behind the scenes from the Osage Nation to refashion the movie to more prominently feature the people who were actually affected by these murders. And I think there's been lots of good conversations after the fact about it. And, and what I would say about Killers of the Flower Moon is it's the same reason that The Wolf of Wall Street is about Jordan Belfort and not the people he ripped off. And why Goodfellas, you know, is often about, is there's more about... There's a big difference between The Wolf of Wall Street and Killers of the Flower Moon, and you know what that difference is. What is that? I mean, yeah, but, like, uh, what I'm saying is that not, like, that is not a movie about why it's really fun to get rich by ripping people off and doing crime. In the same way that, like, this is a movie that is very interested in showing the awful things that happen to the Osage peoples. And the sad truth is, and I'm, and I'm stealing this from native writers, like I read sure. a Letterboxd review, or, you know, there's videos uh, behind the scenes, and like Lily Glassman is on the press trail right now, but the idea being that like, an Osage filmmaker could not make this particular movie. 
They yes. could not have gotten two hundred million dollars to make sure. this massive historical film. But it is also interested in seeing Scorsese worked with the Osage Nation. Yes, she did to refashion the movie and make it to more prominently feature their perspective. And, and so, like to that end, that's why I stand by this movie, and I understand why a lot of people have had problems with its perspective. But, but he's I also think there's trying to make Leonardo DiCaprio's character someone who can be sympathized with. And uh, I, oh, you disagree with that one, but I, okay. we, we can disagree with that. <laughs> it's we, not sympathetic about Ernest Burkhardt to me, well, honestly. I think that some of the ways in which he's specifically shooting him, in which he's trying to play up his stupidity, is also to see: can it, it, is this a man that can be sympathized with? Is this a man that can be forgiven? Is this a man whose marriage was actually a marriage? And I think I know why it is that he is going down that route. But it's one of those where I'm, eh, I, I'm almost tired, and, and, and again, I, I kind of like the movie. I'm 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 kind of done with someone opening up the doors for someone else. You know, Th does that make sense? I, I would rather that the, the the other people just be able to make the film. I'd rather the I, well, proper people just be centered, and I I so know I, I I I, I <laughs> know, but what I, I I guess like the ending, despite how much I think the ending is so well staged and crafted, this is coming from a man who recognizes those same things, and it kind of upsets me that the man recognized the issues with the film, within the film. Yeah, I I think like part of Scorsese's process and getting this movie made, working with the Osage Nation, is understanding that sure. in an ideal world he's not the right person to make this movie. And what I, what some people have come out, uh, I'm not remembering the specifics, but people have come out and said in the wake of Killers of the Flower Moon is hopefully this creates a stepping stone for Native filmmakers to start working within the studio system to start getting budgets because Native American film is still like almost entirely being made in like independently with small budgets and Lily Gladstone has had a great career working in independent films for the most part yes. and, and and like hopefully this will be a stepping stone for people who are either involved in this movie directly or who are inspired by uh, this movie in some way whether it's simply the ambition of Scorsese or the frustration of another white man making a story about native peoples like hopefully that this is a stepping stone and we can look back in 10 years and see some see some of the first like studio movies directed by a Native American filmmaker starring a Native American actor or actress like uh, we, we again we're starting to see some things like Reservation Dogs which is a beloved show on FX where it was like made almost entirely by Say Native, what you uh, want about Taika Waititi Native filmmakers Taika Waititi obviously not Native American but yeah um I mean, he's, he's native in he's, the country of yes, his birth. He, he's uh, Maori from yes. New Zealand. So, yes, like he is a very visible uh, like indigenous filmmaker, yes. So, hopefully there are more people who get to come up in the wake of this movie. Now, Christian, we turn back to you. <laughs> oh, my God. What a transition. What a transition. Uh, we go to your number nine. My number nine is Sawburn. Uh, Saulburn is written and directed by Emerald Fennell, and it is her follow-up to Promising a Woman, a movie that I absolutely loved from 2020. This is a movie that stars um, it stars Barry Keown as uh, Oliver Quick, who is a man attending Oxford, who falls in love. To, to, it, it's a weird – becomes obsessed with, is a better way, a classmate of his who is played by Jacob Awardy. And then uh, he, they strike up a friendship, 
and uh, Jacob Elordi invites him to spend the summer after their first year at Oxford at his estate, which is called Saltburn. The titular Saltburn. The titular Saltburn, and um, wild antics ensue because uh, Oliver is is hiding some things about his past, and also Saltburn is a state that is bleeding in money, um, and uh, I really enjoy this film. I don't think it is as well written as Promising a Woman, and yet I actually think that this is a fun adventure about the obsession of money, how money corrupts, and it, it's not even fully focused on the corruption of money. It's more so a thrilling, weird, quirky tale of obsession. There are scenes that make you squirm. There are scenes that feature some of the best acting that has come out in 2023. There are scenes that stayed with me. I think it's well-constructed. I think that it is not trying to be incredibly deep. I think it's shot beautifully, has great needle drops, and if you choose to tug a little bit at the surface, actually is... What's, what's the best way to put this? Fascinatingly is not a cautionary tale, but a, a making fun of all who ever come into possession of more wealth than maybe they should be required to have. You do not like this film. Uh, no, I don't hate it, that's for sure. I don't like Saltburn, though. I was let down by it for sure because I did really like Promising Young Woman. And with Promising Young Woman, I liked 90% of the movie and really didn't like the ending, which is kind of what sunk it for me. Okay. Whereas with Saltburn, it was a similar problem in that I liked a lot of the first half. I, I liked a lot of elements of the second half, but the it started to unravel for me much sooner than with uh, Fennell's first film. Uh, in particular, I just had some real problems with the resolution of the movie, uh, especially with Oliver Quick as a character. I think it's a great performance in Barracion. He's an actor. He's like becoming one of my favorite guys working these days but uh, i just think that the the character does certain things later on in the movie that needed an explanation and didn't get one and there are other movies where i am very comfortable with the ambiguity obviously like ambiguity in and of itself is not a good or a bad thing it's a tool that a, a writer really can use or, or a director can create with the visuals um and and in other movies the ambiguity the not knowing and we have a shared movie further on our list where it comes in clutch in this particular movie i think it really did not help because of some of the decisions that oliver makes and we just needed to understand his psychology or like his interior world a little bit more for me and we just didn't get that i just think um, he's a sociopath and i i, th I think Sure, I, and I think that but that's, that's like that was that's not interesting as an answer to me. And that's totally fine. Like that's okay. why you connected okay. with it. You know, it's it's like I understand why people like this movie. It's it's not one that I hated. You know. Sure. Uh, and I agree with you. Beautifully shot, like very pretty looking movie. Great performances. I think Rosamund Pike, who appears as um, yes. Felix Jacob Elordi's character, feels as Felix's mother is hilarious. Yeah, like, one of the yes, funniest performances of the year. Um, I like Allison Oliver, too, who plays Felix's sister. She had a much more, like, muted and reserved yep. role in a, a series called Conversations with Friends. And so I really liked seeing her get to be, like, charismatic and sassy and snarky and sexy a little bit. Like, yeah, really, really good part for her. 
enjoyed it a good chunk. It is definitely a movie that when you are done watching it, you will have an opinion on. Which is something that I do love, that it can spark that kind of conversation. Let's. I agree there. Um, is it your number nine next? It is my number nine. It's okay. a movie that came up on your uh, 2311, Christian. It's Bottoms, which of course is uh, written and directed by Emma Seligman, co-written with Rachel Sennett. About Rachel Sennett and Ayo Adabiri's characters who start a fight club at their school as a way to sleep with girls. Because that's what all great high school movies are about. Uh, maybe not entirely, but... I found this to be a really, really uh, just fun and funny revival of the high school comedy. It's a genre we've gotten less of over the years, especially when compared to, say, the 80s or the 2000s. And uh, I just love seeing a return to this very silly form. Uh, I love the tone that Seligman and company create on set because you sort of realize early on you are not in the real world. You are in like a very <laughs> heightened, bizarre, strange version of the real world. The football players are always wearing cleats. Exactly. Like the football the, players are always in uniform for the yeah. most part. There's a guy who's in a cage for half the movie. Class seems to happen for minutes at a time. Yep. Uh, Marshawn Lynch, the football is player, amazing. Is amazing. <laughs> has a hilarious role as the teacher who becomes the sponsor of the Fight Club. They uh, didn't have enough of a budget, a budget to hire more extras in the final scene. Right, like, and that's that's the biggest sin of the movie to me. Sometimes is that its ambition like barely exceeds its grasp. But um, aside from Rachel Sennett and Iowa DeBerry being com- like completely hysterical together, there's this scene um, where Iowa DeBerry's character Josie rants about how she's never going to get a girlfriend she's always going to be single she's going to be forced to marry this other like gay kid at their school and they're going to have to be closeted together and he's going to work at a church and it like everything's going to go wrong it like goes in this hilarious monologue um that's gone viral on twitter multiple times that i always appreciate watching but um there's also like a real emotional core to it as well where you like you you get another great high school friendship where they have a friend break up and they come back together at the end one of them is lucky in love. The other one is unlucky, and we deal with that. It's got a great needle drop, if you remember when oh, they're it's at got the a fantastic needle drop. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's yeah. wonderful. Um, just like a, a type of movie that I love, that a lot of people love, of course, but like I love a good high school set comedy, and this to me was a way of like modernizing and refreshing it with. Uh, like you know just focusing on gay characters which wasn't always the case for high school movies over the years and doing so in a way that's that's not sort of like i hate to say this but like obnoxiously woke or like whatever you want to call it but but it's Uh, weird in that it is very much so focused on them being gay absolutely and but it's it's really just interested in in like in the same way it was interested in a boy pining after a girl and and him losing his virginity it's interested in these girls yes like that exact i don't know if they're virgins or not i don't remember but Uh, they are decidedly virgins (laughs) which they talk about a lot at the beginning of the movie but to me, and I know you enjoyed it too, it appeared in your honorable mentions list, just an absolute blast. And I can't wait to see what Emma Seligman does next because Shiva Baby was great. I think this was great. And I just can't wait to see what's next for her and also for Rachel Sennett. I know I can get Io DeBerry because she is all over 2023 in The Bear and in Theater Camp and in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles even. Like she's been all over the place having an awesome start to her career. But I'm excited thought- about all three of them. I thought Rachel Sennett was in a movie that's going to come out this year. I I, I might be. She, she probably is. I mean, it, I, I just not who knows. Um, okay. So Christian, we now move on. Pat, or actually not. We go to your number eight, not to your number seven. My bad. Number eight. All right. So my number eight is Fingernails. Now Fingernails is a movie that's written by Christos Nikus, Sam Steiner, and Stavros Raptis, directed by Nikus. 
it or Niku, I mean, um, it is a movie about a love test that has been created where by taking the fingernail of one person and the fingernail of another person, fully removing them, putting them inside a machine and testing those fingernails against each other, you can see whether or not the two people are actually in love with each other. And the it's it stars Jesse Buckley, who is working for this institution, who is in a relationship with Jeremy Allen White. There he is again. There he is again, while also uh, realizing that she may be developing feelings for um, for Riz Ahmed's character, who is one of the uh, researchers. Might he's be like a, an instructor, an this, instructor? like helping couple, like couples counseling, and he's he like starts uh, like training her when she gets hired. That's yes. how they that's how they're working together. Now, what I love about this movie is that it's it's got such a big concept and is really quaint it's not interested in massive implications of this and yet in the little experiments that it does with each other that it does with the different couples it's exploring different i think ideas of what love is or could be for example what if the test comes back and it says that two people are in love but they don't feel like they're in love and what i loved about that question being raised is do you always need to feel like you're in love or what should that level of love look like should it look like what they think love should look like or what if the test comes back and it says two people are not in love but you feel as though you are in love well is that love or is that just desire and how do you differentiate between the two there's a messiness that comes in the relationships between the characters um this i also think that this movie despite being high concept isn't trying to grasp too highly the the director said that two of the inspirations for this film were Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and The Truman Show. And you see, like, small droplets of that in this, but it is not as ambitious. Because it's more interested on telling Jesse Buckley's story of what love could mean to her, why is she fascinated with it, and how does she come to feel it. And because of how well-written it is to me... And also, how well these characters are performed because they're, they're, they're weird. They're weird in such small forms, in, in, in the pauses that they even use when they're speaking, in the randomness which with, with which they don't want to take the test because they're scared of the results. And so they'll do all of these small things to sidestep needing to take the test or to retake the test. It's, it's, it's so creative, I think, in the experiments and how what relationship it is that you are building with someone that you are hoping to take the test with and what is the final determining factor on who you choose to stay with. I think it's fun. I think it's cute. I think it's lovely, and I think that it's a head-scratcher, and I keep thinking about it ever since I've seen it. I had a very different reaction. Uh, this is, unfortunately, like another movie on your list that I really didn't like. Um... Did you, is this another one that you watched on a plane? I also watched it on a plane. Nice. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, because we're doing... I was doing some cramming at the end of the year and fingernails... This is why you don't cram. Well, cramming is... It's it's fun, Christian, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just think, unfortunately, like, when you set up a, a love test where you can test something about your relationship and affirm yes or no, you are in love, um, or one thing this movie does do, interestingly, 50%, one of you's in love, the other one's not, which provides some interesting wrinkles at times... I think you just create a very obvious route for your movie to go. 
and that like that is the the central tension of the story is that um, the you know Jesse Buckley and Jer- uh, Jeremy Allen White have this relationship that's not really super spicy anymore and it's very like ru- it's it's a routine they're committed to each other of course but it's very like they're not like Jesse Buckley especially is not really thriving in the relationship and then she meets someone new and starts feeling real feelings and I think it unfortunately like creates this very obvious path for the story to take where like oh there's a test but she's like not really feeling the results of it anymore and people feel like they can't act like outside of the test um and unfortunately for me uh, I, I just found it to be pretty like obvious is the word I, I really lean on um throughout and which is unfortunate because i love riz Ahmed as an actor i really like jesse buckley as an actor i really like jeremy allen white as an actor and i feel like a um a, a dynamic where they are in some kind of love triangle could totally have worked but it just did not work for me in this context unfortunately uh i think you got a lot more out of the themes than i did it seems i did get i i, I did get more out of the themes because i don't actually think it's that obvious because if you had a test that could verify loving emotions, it comes down to, well, first of all, how much credence do you put in the test? I do think that there it, it's introducing a level of ambiguity where something that supposedly should solve at least levels of certainty for people within a relationship muddles it up even more. And I do like that it went that route. And I like that it's so small. I like that it's focusing in on just one person and not what this means yeah. for love in the world as a whole it's, yeah the, the limited ambitions are nice like it it's it's got a really like a very nice vibe to it it's a slow movie but not particularly i mean i, I didn't find it boring even if i didn't like it like i know some people may have but I, it's like shot nicely like nice like they get the right music for yes. this it's like again like the the limited ambition focusing on these few characters like, yeah, I, I did appreciate that about the movie. Niku does, like, does a nice job directing it in that way. And uh, Luke Bryan coming in for, like, a, such a heater. Luke Bryan, the country singer? Not Luke Bryan. <laughs> Luke Wilson. I'm so say, sorry. Oh, you got his name wrong. I, I do love Luke Wilson. Uh, Luke Wilson coming in for a, such a heater of a, just, I think he's in 10 minutes total of this film. Yeah, and it's amazing. Um, that is Fingernails. It is streaming right now on Apple TV+. Plus. I managed to catch this in a theater, which I'm so incredibly thankful for. And that being said, we are on to... My number eight. Speaking of Jeremy Allen White, he plays one of the brothers in the Von Erich family <laughs> in The Iron Claw, which is uh, one of the newer movies on my list, one I saw recently and it made a massive impact on me. It was written and directed by Sean Durkin. Um, and it follows... Mud? Is he? No. No. That's Jeff Nichols. That's Jeff Nichols. That's my Um, writers. That's the other toxic masculine film I saw this year. (laughs) There you go. Sean Durkin uh, previously directed two films, uh, Martha, Marcy, Mae, Marlene, and The Nest, if people have seen either of those. But The Iron Claw follows the life of the, uh, particularly Kevin Von Erich, but also the Von Erich family, who were a uh, family of professional wrestlers coming up in the 80s in Texas. And their family was beset upon by tragedy, after tragedy and it follows primarily kevin who's played by zach efron through this really difficult period in his life which uh features the loss of many of his brothers to uh one uh one tragedy or another as they are trying to essentially become successful and famous in the world of professional wrestling 
Um, it also features Holt McElhaney, who is a character actor a lot of people will recognize just by face, but he is playing uh, Fritz von Erich, the father of this group of uh, wrestlers. Who's truly awful. Yes. Uh, truly like, yes. evil. When you say toxic masculinity, it's his picture like in the dictionary. Uh, this hard-driving father who pits his sons against one another, not in a joking way, in a very Gives serious them rankings. way. rankings. Uh, literally ranks them at one point in the movie, but also was willing to to treat them pretty cruelly. Um, and, and even, like, taking the rug out from under them, uh, Kevin is the oldest brother and sort of set to be the first person to kind of win a belt. Obviously, if you know anything about professional wrestling, you know it's, it's not quote-unquote fake, but it is planned. And so you can... Kevin is the second oldest brother. Oh, true. There is, uh, unfortunately, one of the... That when they start talking about this curse, they do talk about the uh, the oldest brother, Jack, Jack Jr., who passed away when he was a child. Uh, and so that's sort of like the first warning sign that something, of course, may be uh, going wrong in this family. They talk about the curse quite a bit. But um, Kevin is sort of supposed to be the one who wins the, the first belt and is like the leader but as his brothers come up, Jeremy Allen White playing Carrie, Harris Dickinson playing David, and Stanley Simons playing Mike, the youngest. Um, there's also like a there's sort of changing dynamics in the ring and outside of it. And uh, the, the way that Fritz bears down on all of them is what drives a lot of the movie, unfortunately. The, the various pressures that they are trapped under, the things that they turn to to help them uh, medicate and deal with these problems... Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, leads to the downfall of many of them. And it is a very sad movie. It, it like, uh, it is a movie that will make you cry if you are a crier at movies like me. But even even if you're not a big crier, like you will come out of it feeling it in your heart or in your gut or wherever, um, just based on what happens to this poor family. In light of that, I think that it's not just like a weepy or like a tearjerker, but it really does resolve in a pretty beautiful place. And the totality of the experience is what really made the Iron Claw so, like, powerful to me. Um, there's a scene late in the movie, uh, which does, uh, you know, this is, like, history. I'm not going to say who, so it's kind of not spoiled for you. But where we do uh, see a scene of some of the brothers who have passed on, like, they kind of return uh, in an unexpected way. That is, like, a scene of the year candidate for me okay um that follows up with kevin after his pro wrestling career has concluded and he um lily james plays uh his, his the woman who becomes his wife and uh we kind of see them with their family near the end of the movie uh and, and again really resolving some of these themes of like what does it mean to be a man like what is masculinity and again this movie that features primarily like big muscle-bound dudes like wrestling and like getting in the ring and and just try, not like not only wrestling with uh, like the physical um, guy in front of them, but also with the the weight of the world that's upon them and the, what their father uh, does to them, like emotionally and verbally, abusively. Um, where like Kevin resolves in his journey uh, is just so powerful to me and so beautifully done. It, it just made a massive impact on me and even got me thinking about myself and some of the men in my family. Although none of us are like professional wrestlers or anything like that. Just like a really profound movie to me. Hey, 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 don't sell your brother short. Carter, he could make it. Carter's a great dude, but he and I are not pro wrestlers. Um, yet. But yet. But um, a really profound movie to me without always trying to be. One that has uh, some incredible performances. And it's just one of those movies where it, it, it's not always ostentatious, but is 
really incredibly well directed by Sean Durkin, who you can you can feel knows this world inside and out. I think sadly too, they even cut out a, a member of they the cut family. Cut out a brother. There is another brother who does not feature in the movie. His part of his journey is sort of elided into Mike, and so the youngest brother becomes like two guys in one. But really sad, really horrible story, but really powerful movie in, in my opinion. That's why it's my number eight, even though I saw it, I think, a week, week and a half ago. I enjoy this movie quite a bit. I think that there are definitely scenes stealing people in this movie. The brother who, who the actor who plays Mike. Yes. Who is the, the... Stanley Simons. Stanley Simons, who is the brother that, at the beginning of the movie, wants to not be a wrestler and is more interested in playing music. Right. Um, as you follow his storyline, you realize how important the moments in which they are not wrestling just are in building their camaraderie. If I give this movie one fault, my one fault is I wish I had seen more of the scenes where they were not wrestling, where there was not the tragedy in order to make the tragedy hit even harder. That's the only thing I guess I would have wanted from this yeah. movie. And I found that balance early on. I, I, from my perspective, I think they, they do try to really play up the camaraderie the brothers feel for each other. So oh, that, you definitely feel the yeah. love yeah. between them. The I Maybe I am biased to do my, my favorite performance was Jeremy Allen White. And, and, and weirdly in that, he's not even the best written character. It's just that I, there's such an internal angst to him that was so well represented considering that these were boys who were literally told to not share their emotions to their parents right. by their parents. Yes. Which was so powerful to look at because sometimes it comes out in the, the, the most excruciating ways like when the mom says that she can't put on the dress again when she's attending another son's funeral yeah, because they will her, know. Maura Tierney is the actress there. Maura Tierney. Really sad but like touching moment. Uh, because she knows that other people recognize that it's the same funeral dress she had worn before. It is those moments that I loved. It 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 is also moments when there is levity, and there's not a there's not much levity in this movie. No. But the moments that I do get those that really made it. Oh, I actually care about every single one of these characters. Sometimes they feel like the worst people. I would I would never want to hang out with some of them. I think, but I care so deeply, and I love the fact that they love each other. It, it, it's a wonderful movie, and it is well worth people's time to go check out. Plus, you get to see Zac Efron in like an awards-worthy turn, which is not something I ever thought we would see from Zac Efron. No offense to him. <laughs> I mean, But did you not see him sing Bet on it? Uh, okay, never mind. I did see him sing Bet on it. Uh, plus, his body is like, like sculpted like a statue. Unbelievable how jacked he is in this movie. Okay, speaking of people who are jacked, did you watch anyone but you? Not yet. Okay, you I'm, I'm actually, sir, as sir, of today, I'm sir, seeing it with my wife sir, tomorrow. Sir, so. a month and a half ago or two months ago, yeah. in our group chat, yeah. you, you, we asked each other, what are our most anticipated movies of the rest of the year? Yeah. And you put anyone but you at your number five. Yeah, I'm seeing it tomorrow. I've been waiting for it. Really, uh, really waiting for I it. I could have made your top 20 and you didn't even give it the option. Yeah. You know, Christian, don't uh, don't get into a relationship who, uh, with someone who also wants to see movies and you have to wait <laughs> until their schedule aligns. Stay single, see movies. Christian, your number seven appears we're, higher on my list. Yeah, we're not going to talk about it yet. So I'll quickly talk about my number seven because it's the only movie on my list that you have not seen. Uh, and that movie is The Zone of Interest. 
Okay. Which is directed, written and directed by Jonathan just a, Glazer. It sounds like just like a fun time, like a light and breezy movie. Like a great double pairing with Looney Tunes back in action. Yeah, The Zone of Interest. Definitely a lighthearted film. Uh, written and directed by Jonathan Glazer, loosely adapted uh, from Martin Amos' novel, which is about Rudolf Huss, uh, Hess, I should say, who is the commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp, uh, and his wife, Hedwig Huss, and about the life that they build quite literally, just beyond the walls of the Auschwitz, Auschwitz concentration camp. Uh, it stars Christian Friedel and Sandra Huller, who also appeared uh, in a movie that we will be talking about later, um, this year, and appear as the uh, couple at the center. And the zone of interest is the most, I, I would say, like the closest to an art film that appears on my list. Uh, we are certainly going to get far away from art film territory as we get higher up on mine. The zone of interest is a very uh, unique film experience in that it is very much about how normal everyday people become unbelievably evil uh, and wrought horrible violence and villainy on the world uh, obviously Auschwitz concentration camp uh, hundreds of thousands of people I believe is the final number by the end of the war were killed at this camp alone and Huss is was renowned by the Nazis for his uh, optimization and efficiency in making this an efficient place to kill people, specifically to kill Jews and the other people who came through that concentration camp. And the movie really sets up this powerful dichotomy by almost entirely focusing on their domestic life, whether it is hosting family members who come to visit, uh, Hedwig walking through the garden and showing off the plants there, um, them going about their daily chores at the house, all the while you either physically see Auschwitz concentration camp in the background, physically see smoke rising from the furnaces, physically see the train coming with more people. Is there um, a scene with teeth? Yes. Okay. Uh, there are multiple scenes where like the remains of people are seen or like their property and it's just, it's jarring. Um, or you also, the, the sound design in this movie is incredible and it obviously like a horrible way but you often hear the sounds of the camp um just matched with the the, the banality of life for the Huss family um it is a bracing examination of evil and and again how normal people can rot these things on the world it is not an easy watch but it is a an incredibly well done movie in my opinion it's one that i think people should seek out if they're willing to um get on the movie's level and, and see what it's doing uh, again, much closer to a, more of like an art film than a mainstream entertainment uh, when compared to other movies on my list. But that is The Zone of Interest. Uh, a difficult movie, but a very, very well-made movie. Uh, kudos to Jonathan Glazer and team for uh, somehow pulling it together. Can I just explain why I didn't watch it? Because I had a couple opportunities. Sure. I didn't want to do it to myself. <laughs> I, and, 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 and I, I, get, I, 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 I do want to watch it. It has generated some awards buzz for how well directed it is and the sound design. You are not the first person who has told me that. The, um, I just wanted to give this perspective to people because sometimes, you know, when you're when you're torn between watching a couple different movies, it was one of those. Yeah, like uh, what I've I can see one thing. What do I go to see? Yeah, when, when it's like a small contem not small when it is a contemplative, patient film about evil within world war ii told over told through the lens of a family that did not need to experience it but was instead the cause of it and was benefiting off of it 
It was a, I believe this movie is about two hours long. Uh, about, yeah. It, it, was, it was not something that I wanted to expose myself to, despite how intrigued I am to see how someone tackles it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is well worth seeing. Obviously, like, be aware of it, listeners, going into it. It is a heavy, heavy movie. Uh, and you will spend the entire time thinking about the horrific injustices that these people are uh, bringing about on the world. And it is still uh, a very powerful piece of art, uh, I think, and, and worth experiencing. Christian, yes. we now go back to you for your number six. Is that... Is that... Is that past lives? It is. Okay. <laughs> I was was was. Well, I, I don't I don't have the full. Oh, do I? Oh yeah, I do. Okay. Christian's being a good boy, listeners. He's got his notes out and everything, I but I, I can see you you fit lots into that page, and <laughs> you're trying to locate your notes on past lives. No, so past lives. You've already mentioned it. It was in your honorable mentions from eleven through twenty. It is written and directed by Celine Song, and it deals with two friends. I, I can't remember whether they, at one point they had dated or not. Who are each other's first crush? I they think. were each other's first crush. Reconnect. Well, it's actually told during different stages of their lives. Yeah, it's like from, the, the three periods. Yes. Yeah. From childhood to adulthood, when they reconnect after so many years to now Greta Lee's character is married to John Magaro's character and Teo Yu has re-entered the picture for a small period of time. This is a film that explores the doors of possibilities as to what was and what could have been. The entire idea behind past lives has to deal with a, a, a concept known as um, uh, Inyang? Inyang, yeah. Uh, which, which is all of the past lives that you had lived and whether or not what you are living right now is actually a past life for a future self of yours. And what that is trying to do is saying, did they make the correct choice in, uh, well, her having chosen her husband and him not having pursued her in the past? Now, it is a movie that is ripe with thought about what exactly what does it mean to have regret but to have regret also is a slap in the face to the decision that it is that you've made now especially when that decision is the person that you are married to also it is the, the chemistry amongst all three of them is off the charts the chemistry between Greta Lee and John Magaro is is lovely and, yeah, and, they and like comfortable. Have this, this beautiful vibe of like yes. recognizable, like a married couple. Yes. Um, and like you said, the chemistry that's there—not necessarily like a passion, but a comfort—and and that like that you know healthy married couples give one another, which is of course complicated by Teo you re-entering the picture. But there's such a like a, a carefully handled balance for the character dynamics. We're like, of course, Arthur Magaro's character. And uh, Sung, who's Tao Yu's character, like Arthur and Sung feel a little bit standoffish with each other, but they don't, they don't like come to blows or anything. It's not like melodramatic like that. It, it's so 
carefully handled. This is actually yeah. a very good double feature with fingernails, and I think one of the best reviews on Letterboxd I saw for fingernails was, I need the people from past lives to take this test right now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, isn't that just scary? Yeah. Because, again, love is manifesting itself in different ways, because knowing that she is married, there are, I'm assuming, some limitations she's putting on her actions when she is up against Yu. that if those limitations were not there, what exactly, how would they proceed with seeing each other for the first time in oh how long and uh, uh, John Magaro on seeing his wife in that way and loving her and wanting the best for her but also being jealous and loving her there's a scene that's so hilarious because of how awkward it is where the three of them are in the bar and that bar is featured very prominently in posters and tra the uh, trailer for the movie and is uh, both the opening scene and one of the closing scenes of the film where um, two are speaking in Korean and John Magaro, whose Korean is very limited, is just there and, and can only really guess as to, and I think it's actually worse that he understands some words because then it's like, a, I'm getting, I'm getting something here. I'm getting something there, but what exactly could it all mean? And you are also forced to reckon with that because one, did she make the correct decision? Two, is, is it, do we take passion to be love? Or do we take love to be a choice that you have made? And three, what the frick does the next day look like? Yeah, yeah I mean... <laughs> what, does it, what does the next day look like? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think what's, what is lovely about that question is that, um, you know, a lot of times we see people wrestle with the idea that, like, like marriage, like marriage is commitment, but, like, passion. You know, that's what so many movies, are, like, they're about this passionate romance returning or, or arriving and causing an affair but what we see in past lives is nora who's you know greta lee's character like nora's commitment to arthur is not matched with like dissatisfaction or unhappiness which is why the, these the wondering about what could have been with hey sung is so complicated for her because it's not like she's unhappy in her marriage and she's going to leave her husband and run off with this person from her past it's that while she, of course, like could have loved Taesung if they li if life went differently and she stayed in Korea or if he moved to Canada with her, like not with her, but like when he was older, like uh, you know whatever it is, like you feel the the chemistry uh, amongst the cast, but that Nora has with her husband and with this person from her past, and like you feel for them in that way, and and you know that like she's not gonna leave Arthur, but he is also going to like understand these feelings for her despite his maybe his discomfort with some of it. it it's such like mature uh like mature characters and, and the dynamics between them created like really resistant again to like hollywoodization or melodrama or like rom-com style like comedy um and, and really committed to just a, a a like patient and thoughtful tone um it's yeah, also such a I good think, movie. Like again, any other year, this is easily in my top ten, and I had to leave it out. And I'm so sad about that. No, no, no. I also wanted to say, even the idea of a past life, which is, if we have made the wrong decision now, does that mean that in the future there is a right decision to make? It, it's, it's people have really well described this as this is a movie that you want to talk about with someone else after you have seen it. Yeah, because in the realm of possibilities what is the possibility that you think you would have chosen had you been in that scenario great chemistry 
great performances, great staging, and one, great yeah. score. And yes, great score. And, and I like that you point out staging too, because I think Celine Song has a playwriting background, like yes. a theatrical background. And sometimes when people with a theatrical background make their film debut, their their movies' visuals are not necessarily so striking unless they have a great cinematographer or whatever. But Celine Song, and, and she was not her own cinematographer, of course, but there are some moments visually in this movie that have stuck with me. And um, whether it's like uh, Arthur and Nora meeting under the like uh, the the lights outside of this like writers retreat they're staying at, and the, like sort of in the in the nighttime like night sky is out, but the lights are twinkling above them, or uh, that that famous moment from this movie or now famous moment from the movie where Nora is kind of going as a child is going up the stairs and Sung is walking like the path and you, you see their paths literally diverging as they're walking home as kids but obviously a very like clear visual metaphor there's some really great stuff visually too in a movie that like has a beautiful screenplay and has great performances but this type of like semi-romantic drama that doesn't always have the visuals to match it like that part is there uh, which is again something I just so deeply appreciate about past lives with that, do we move on to a movie that is on both of our lists? We do, because my number six appears higher on your list, and so we go to our number five, which, I think we've done this in the past, actually, is a shared movie. And that movie is the other Sandra Huller performance of this year. It is Anatomy of a Fall, Justine Trier's Palme d'Or winner from this year's Cannes Film Festival, a script that she co-wrote with Arthur Harari, stars Sandra Huller as Sandra, who is a writer of novels, whose son, uh, a husband, excuse me, Samuel, dies after falling from their sort of remote uh, mountain chalet, and his body is discovered by their son, Daniel, and then goes into the investigation that happens after Samuel's death. Was it a accident? Was it a suicide? Or perhaps was it a murder? And Sandra is, of course, the prime suspect. And then it follows this case into the wild French courtroom <laughs> as... Uh, Sandra tries to prove her innocence. Daniel tries to figure out what happened between his parents. And you know, people are reading books in this courtroom. People read books in the courtroom, yeah. Um, Christian, I'm... Yes. We've already talked about this movie on the podcast a little bit. We have, because we saw it as part of Beyond Fest earlier this year, which yes. is pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, this movie to me, like, can be very easily summed up and that it's an absolutely, like, ripper of a courtroom drama. Just, like, again, a, a classical... Uh, genre executed incredibly well and also features these like really uncomfortable ambiguous themes because there was no clear answer given on whether or not uh, Samuel's death was an accident a suicide or a murder and you are forced to come to your own conclusions as a viewer and the way that ambiguity is handled here I think is pretty masterfully done by um Yes. by Trier and Harari's script. So I love this one. I know you do too. What stands out to you, Christian? What stands out to me is that I came to my own decision as to whether or not she did or didn't do it. I'm not going to share that. I want people to come up with their own decisions. Although if any of you come up to me, I'll happily tell you what my conclusion is. And yet, despite having come up to that decision, I still think that there is strong evidence for the other part. Like, I think that there have been some testimonies in, in within this court trial that are false. And and, and I, I that, like, made me doubt why it was that I had come to my conclusion. I think that there are some people who are just vindictive within this film. And you are parsing through emotions. You are parsing through 
an audio recording, which is the only scene that we get because it, it gets blown up for the audience to see this flashback of her actually yeah. yelling at her husband. Yeah, like and there's an of, audio recording in the courtroom, but yes. they cut to the fight so that we, like the movie audience, can visualize see it. it. Yeah, and again, scene of the year candidate right there. Scene of the year. Unbelievable, unbelievable acting and writing in that scene. Uh, my scene of the year is actually coming up. Uh, well, not, not in this film, but I'm in excited to hear. Uh, what is also incredible about this movie um, great dog acting like Snoop Snoop was Snoop amazing uh, incredible incredible dog performance absolutely harrowing dog scene uh, coming late in this movie that made me uh, in the theater like cringe and all my muscles contracted and I was like oh Snoop and, and thankfully Snoop escapes that situation shall we say but great it, dog it, acting it's also set against a lot of snow and it's that use of snow and and snowfall and just white that kind of plays into the idea that there is a black and white answer except it turns that on its head despite there being so much white around things are not black and white things are way far from it and this gorgeous house that is being shot by Trier. Uh, I also want to shout out Arthur Harari, who is the co-writer on this film, and their ability in which it sh- the, the the courtroom is 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 it, it's a witch hunt, honestly, and in being able to see the emotions and how awful this prosecutor is to her, almost like he wants to bully her, yeah, and yet yeah, and yet you don't believe she's fully innocent. Like, whether or not you believe she's innocent, she 100% slapped her husband. She 100% cheated on her husband. She is never portrayed as an innocent individual, which makes this more interesting. Even if she's not, like, even if you don't deem her to be a morally upstanding citizen, does that make her a murderer exactly yeah it's it like it's an incredible performance from sandra huller portraying this woman in such a way that you never outright hate her of course but you also don't outright love her um you understand her complexities and the way that she's wronged her family and how she confesses to that and owns up to it and the same way that you don't outright just believe the husband's innocent right and and importantly uh daniel their son played uh really really well by milo machado grainer uh, might young, be the child performance of the year. Yeah, a young actor who really kills it here as, as their visually impaired, almost blind son. Uh, and he gets uh, a couple of moments that are as impressive as anything that Sandra Huller or uh, any other actor in this movie does. Like, just an incredible performance from such a young actor. Uh, there's a, a, a great moment that really kind of captures some of these themes where Daniel is with um marge who's this woman uh who's been appointed as his like court appointed guardian with his father gone and his mother under trial and she kind of asks him you know like daniel like what do you think and he's like well i don't know blah blah blah. there's like there's this there's that and she says you know sometimes with the truth we have to like think about the facts of the case and decide our answer and stick to it And, and like that challenge to him motivates what happens near the conclusion of the film but it's also such like a fascinating challenge to us as an audience like are we willing to, to like make our commitments to what happened and stand by it, uh, including the evidence for the other options? It's uh, truth is relative. Yeah. It's just who do you want to believe is also part of this. Yeah, I mean, even less than truth being relative here, it's like truth. Like there might be truth to a situation that's impossible to know. And, and how do you how do you react in that mm-hmm. uh, in that tension? So 
if you get a chance to see Anatomy of a Fall, folks, like, please go see this movie. It is incredibly well done. Also, like, a lot of languages being spoken here. A lot of it is in English, um, despite it being a French film. And that is part of the story, too, where Sandra Huller, a German actress, playing a German character who's married a French man, and her inability to speak French perfectly fluently comes up in the court case. So, yeah, just worth your time uh and not maybe as much of a bar as sometimes that that one inch barrier that bong joon ho talked about of subtitles can be so check it out christian we move on to your number four which is a yes um, we do a, a movie that is a marked difference from anatomy of a fall in that it features a lot more murdering and blood <laughs> and that movie is that movie is Scream 6. It is written and directed by Radio Silence, the team. Well, actually, it's just directed by Radio Silence, which is Matt Bettinelli, Olpen, and Tyler Gillette. It is written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. All right. In Scream 6, it, it, it follows the gang that was introduced in the fifth Scream movie, Scream, as they go to New York City and are there once again hunted by Ghostface as well as needing to kind of bring together a coalition of everyone who has survived the Ghostface killing in the past. Um, what I love about this movie and how every every Scream movie is a whodunit and it is also a, 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 a meta-commentary on just cinema... And really he, on like horror movies or even on like franchise filmmaking like what yeah. what's what I really enjoyed is how brutal these deaths are these oh yeah these <laughs> and, and and I actually think it's hilarious that many of these brutal stabbings don't even result in death and I think it's like my one problem with this movie is there's I, a someone survives late in the movie that shouldn't I think but I, I, I think there were two people that that yeah. when they were when they were stabbed they yeah. were they were they were dead stabbed yeah. they were they were they were stab stabbed, <laughs> um, but the more I think about it, the more I actually appreciate the fact that they didn't die because the meta commentary then is what is going to bring people to a movie to watch another screen film, and they this is much uh, darker. This is much more brutal. Then what we got with Scream, Scream 2, Scream 3, uh, Scream 4-ish. Scream 4, I actually think, goes kind of hard. And here it's presenting these new deaths as not even deaths, as like, how do you keep a franchise going for a horror movie where people are supposed to be keep dying? I actually think they turn on its head the trope of killing people, but upping the brutality of it. There are such well-staged stab scenes from the opening kill to the use of, um, to like the, you see Ghostface take off his mask in, in, in one of the earlier scenes and it is used to great effect as, again, what do you expect the reveal to be? I just think it's so smartly written. And I not just think it's so smartly written, I think the performances between Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega and Courtney Cox and Hayden Panettiere. She's back. Kirby's she, back, folks. Kirby's back are cool. Uh, and that's one of the best ways to say it. They are cool. They are awesome. They are resilient. They are bloodthirsty. In like a look by the sixth screen movie, we hate Ghostface so much, we're going to show him how terrifying we can be. 
And this is a movie that I definitely love because I love the Scream franchise. This is also a movie that I love because I think the staging of it creates a a sense of absurdity. And you can have a horror movie that takes itself so incredibly seriously. You can have a horror movie that takes you to the very pits of hell. You can have a horror movie that is mainly based on the concept that it is. I think this is a horror movie that is so absurd and knows how to use that to cheer. When the bad guys are being stabbed in this movie, you're cheering. I'm cheering. When Ghostface is revealed, I'm cheering. Because it builds up to that. It knows how to peak. It knows what its peaks and what its valleys are. And it takes you onto a ride. It is gorgeously edited. There's not a single moment in this film that lags. And to me, one of the things is you need to be well edited. You need to keep up momentum. This movie does so. It barrels forward. I love Scream 6. Scream 6 absolutely rules. Uh, I, I went up to uh, 31 on my list of movies. Uh, Scream 6 is 29 uh, because this was an amazing year for movies. But yeah, Scream 6 rules. Um, the future of the franchise is in doubt thanks to That's, some oh, controversial decisions made by uh, by the uh, Spyglass Entertainment, the uh. studio who makes these movies, which is unfortunate because I really loved what they were doing with these movies. Uh, I think the cast here too, like some real, like they get Dermot Mulroney for this movie, which like, Everybody loves Dermot Mulroney. What a he's guy! He's anyone but you. He look at that. He's an anyone but you. Um, Henry Zerny, who like, I don't know if he's like a mainstream name, but he's Kittredge in Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning One. I mean, Part One, of course, and the original Mission Impossible. Like Samara Weaving shows up as like the person who gets killed by Ghostface at the beginning of the movie. It's just like Jeff yes. Champion, who's Spider in Avatar: The Way of Water. Spider in Avatar: The Way of Water is in this movie, folks. If you haven't seen Scream Six, and I mean, watch the rest of the Scream movies, of course, because you'll like it more. But yes, Scream Six absolutely rules. Christian, we have to skip over my number four because it appears higher on your list, and so now we go to your number three. Uh, number three is Maestro. Now, number three is. Uh, Written by Bradley Cooper and Josh Singer, it is directed by Bradley Cooper. It is a follow-up to A Star Is Born. We have already spent time talking about it in this in in, in this podcast in the past. Um, this is not a typical biopic, but it is a biopic on the life of Leonard Bernstein and more specifically Leonard Bernstein's marriage to Felicia Montalegre, who is portrayed by Carrie Mulligan. Um, the movie is gorgeous. To look at it has bradley cooper and carrie mulligan giving some of the best performances of the entire year it has an incredible amount of music and and, and magical uses of this it, it's almost like the rise of greatness is magic and then reality the, the 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 first part of this film is in black and white and it's magical and and that's the best way i can put it because scenes quickly cut and, 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 and blend together. Um, the way that I would describe it is, is almost disorienting. Because yes. it's like not the a traditional The sound is thing. also different in yeah. the beginning than in the yeah. end. And, and like there's not those traditional guideposts that a biopic might do. Like New York, 1954. There's not – they don't like show you time and place. You're just going along for the ride. Which once you get used to what how they structure the movie, I think is actually really successful. But – uh, again, this is a movie that I really quite liked. It's just not not quite in my top ten. But um, yeah, it, it's very unconventional in that way when compared to other biographical films. Which I love. It, it also just made me feel for... It, it didn't give me necessarily an understanding 
of who Leonard Bernstein was, but it gave me an understanding of what it meant to believe and be told that you had so much talent and not know what to do with it. The scene, my favorite scene of this entire year is when uh, Bernstein is, and, and, and Montalegre are envisioning a tap dancing number of On the Town. And he starts to imagine what it would be like to be on stage with them. He starts to imagine what it would be like to be one of the tap dancers. And it's kind of also a gay fantasia right there. It, it, it can draw themes into because Leonard Bernstein was for a long time, though, married, also having his affairs with men. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was it, it's not like a coming out, but also what does it mean to imagine myself as being free, but also loving to do this, but also being crushed under the weight of what people tell me I can be, but also being told that I should change my last name because people aren't going to like it if a Jew does this, but also secretly being gay, and therefore how are people going to believe in that? To but his also... credit, very proudly bisexual. Uh, <laughs> there's a moment where he uh, addresses a child and says that he has had sex with both but his mother and, and his father, father. Yep. which is um, kind of it's like amazing. quite funny and also a little bit uncomfortable. You shouldn't say that to a child. I mean, it's a baby, so the baby can't comprehend. But <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's also this 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 when when you go further on the greatness of Leonard Bernstein, and I and I do love this is being portrayed in his conducting not 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 his composite his composition is felt throughout the movie because it is his scores that are being used as backdrops uh, not backdrops but but as the scores for the movie and when you get to the scene that he conducts at the ely cathedral um it is a oneer scene of the year <laughs> so many scenes of the year man but that one is unbelievable it um it, it yeah. it's it he's like what the how do you do that like, and it's that joke, you know, that he spent six years learning how to conduct for six minutes. Those six minutes are worth it. Though you do not take your eyes away from how much he's sweating, how much he has thrown himself in there. And then I, I, you noted this. It's almost like a jump scare. The camera eventually turns as the, as the um, music is ending to focus on Carrie Mulligan's character. Yeah. Because it is also on her perception of him. And what, like, what's amazing, too, is that they have like hit a rocky yes. spot in their marriage. And like you, we then see this like incredibly powerful moment of music performance. You finally see the, the glory of Bernstein on display because it's been so reserved and showing him at work to that point in the movie. And you get this unbelievably gorgeous piece of music in this massive cathedral this like grandiose moment and cooper is playing it with all the vigor that bernstein actually mustered if you not only watch the performance but you can see they show clips of it during the credits like you can see this like like this guy who is just who is feeling the music in every fiber of his being but the movie is less interested in that and more interested in the marriage and the relationship that like shaped and defined his life and the camera, not so much like cuts to Felicia, of course, but the camera finally has this glide. Like pans to her, yeah. Yeah, like glides to her. Yeah, and settles her. right behind her shoulder. And we see that she's been watching the whole time, that they have reconnected. And, it, and again, like Maestro has been very divisive. Some people think it's way overrated. Some people absolutely love it like you did. And I think the biggest uh, 
piece of the movie that has been divisive is the decision to focus less on Bernstein as this famous composer and conductor and more on this man in a marriage. Which I find to be a, a very interesting way of approaching a, a biopic and a, fam- and a great man's right. story, and and not just, not just going a Bohemian Rhapsody sort of route, right? Which look, I don't, I don't hate Bohemian Rhapsody. I know that you do, yeah, not really. Um, <laughs> but but it's definitely you're not just hitting the dates like you said. You are going into well, what is the actual feel for who Bernstein is, and this is definitely a take. And that the feel for who Bernstein is is in the relationship that he had with Felicia. And in doing so, everything he does is under her watchful eyes, but because she needs to keep looking at him, what happens with her career and her desire to maybe have a relationship that is not just a relationship to keep up appearances. And the weight of what... The stress that the marriage causes on both of them. The stress that his quote-unquote talent or at least public perception causes on both of them is 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 tremendous to see on this screen um i it has been called oscar baby look if this is what an oscar bait movie is i would gladly take 20 of these a year yeah i think i mean i think too oscar bait is somewhat thrown around these days like any any biopic kind of gets considered oscar bait these at this point but What's interesting to me is a lot of attention is put on Cooper, rightly, as the co-writer, co-producer, director, star of this movie. But he makes the very interesting choice of casting one of the best working actresses as his wife in this movie. And giving her top billing. And giving her top billing and and making the movie oriented around her, uh, which really complicates the idea of this being like an Oscar Beatty biopic. I think much more than that, like this is a, a swing for the fences, less than just like a bland Oscar bait movie. And to me, it, it's like, it's like a double, like an easy stand up <laughs> double. I think for some like yourself, like home run, I think some people think he like swings and like misses so badly that he strikes out and falls over and breaks his teeth, like falling down to the ground. But I love that about this movie. I love that it's been divisive. I love that there's been good conversation. Like, big fans of it, big critics of it. I, I love when a movie can Can't, create that. I also cannot wait until his next movie. And, and What, there, what wait, musician wait, wait, will wait. he bring to life next? No, I, <laughs> Fictional I, or real? I sent you that message that it looks like him and Christian Bale will be in a movie about spies. And Sign me up. There are talks of him directing it. Sign me if up. You, I'm in. Look. Look, M- musical thighs, perhaps? Yo. <laughs> if you put two of my favorite actors in a movie directed by Bradley Cooper, I would. All we need is Michael Keaton to play their grizzled oh mentor, and it'd be the Christian who used the movie. I would, um... I would do unspeakable things. I would, I, I, I would rob banks to get money to that premiere. We move on, Christian, from Maestro to my number three, a decidedly different kind of movie. My number three is Godzilla Minus One. <laughs> Written and directed by Takashi Yamazaki, who also led the visual effects here. It, of course, is about Godzilla, but so-called Minus One because it actually uh, chronologically takes place before the original Godzilla film uh, taking place. Is that why it's called Minus One? Because I never yes. knew. Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. The original Godzilla uh, was made in 1954, I believe, and this movie, and it's at that time. 55, I think. 55. And, and this movie takes place at the end of World War II and then shortly after it. As Godzilla first rears his ugly head 
uh, and during the final days of World War II in Japan before reappearing later on. Uh, the film is centered on a, a young man named Koichi Shikishima, who is played by Ryonosuke Kamiki, and he has a very interesting uh, dilemma to his character, one that is basically never explored in American movies for obvious reasons, and that he is a uh, Japanese pilot in the war who is a kamikaze pilot. And on the day that he is given his orders to like fight to the death, crash his plane if he must, he fakes a mechanical failure and lands on this island to get out of the battle and survive. And that is where Godzilla eventually first appears. And he is haunted by this encounter with Godzilla that kills many of the men that that he's who are fixing his plane. And when Godzilla appears again in mainland Japan after the war, he uh, is then in a situation where he is living with a young woman who has adopted a baby whose parents were killed during the war. Uh, that woman is Noriko, played by Minami Hamabe. This movie, to me, it, like I'm not, I didn't come up with this, but uh, it has become so beloved partially because people are wondering who put the big ugly monster in their gripping drama about the triumph of the human spirit. <laughs> um, it is as effective a human drama as it is a big kaiju monster movie. Yes, there is awesome visual effects. Godzilla looks great and mm -hmm. destroys some Japanese cities, launches his big blue fire laser thing that uh, is a very ridiculously obvious nuclear bomb metaphor because of the, the way that it wreaks destruction on these cities. And less, you know, and yes, a major part of the movie is many soldiers who survived the war gathering together to take down Godzilla. Because the, the government cannot muster the resources or will not like confess that this is a real problem because they want to try to hide it as best they can. And so the people rise up to stop Godzilla themselves. And so much is made about the theme uh, of, of just of, of life, of living, of being alive, of legitimately the human spirit triumphing over these problems, standing with your fellow man, uh, and, and in their case, your fellow Japanese countrymen, and saving their country themselves. When, of course, they lost the war. But you also have this just genuinely heartstring-pulling dynamic between Koichi and Noriko, who have this, I won't call it a will-they-won't-they, they, but there's a, an unspoken tension that she is interested in getting married after they've lived together for some years. And he's and, blind to it. Yeah. And he's blind to it because of the guilt that he's feeling in the wake of his inability to quote, you know, follow his quote duty. Quote-unquote coward yeah. yes. It, it, uh, his inability to follow his duty, and uh, he also, like, fails to shoot at Godzilla, which causes the deaths of some of the other men uh, when he lands his plane on this island. So he's dealing with all of his guilt, can't see her affections for him, and only realizes it when all this you know, it, stuff it, with it, Godzilla is happening. It's a, it's a gripping tale about a big kaiju. Uh, it's a gripping tale about small people. Uh, in the face of this, <laughs> of this like scary monster. There's a great supporting cast too of like guys who uh, yes. he meets and works with and to me, this is Can like one of my favorite dramas of the year and also there's a big monster blown crap okay. up. So that is why I Can love this movie so much. I, I, I think this movie is so well crafted. I think the monster design is so epic. I think the main performance is incredibly well handled. I... I'm a boy, and I thought <laughs> so. Am I? <laughs> like, there was not enough Godzilla, 
and I thought that there was too much melodrama. I mean, that is absolutely your loss. Um. Well, I, I, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm okay with it. Look, look, look. I'm not going to sit here and I, 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 look. This movie is way better than the Godzilla movie we got in 2021, Godzilla v. Kong. I get that. 100%. Um, also, though, Godzilla v. Kong had, like, a lot of Godzilla. And I – look, 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 look. The design for Godzilla and when he powers up is awesome it's sick the way that his like scales emerge from his back and, and when he's it preparing turns his, like, pink laser or and he yes and when he's at the bottom of the ocean and you see it as well as wood but i i will say i saw how sick even when he was on the island because godzilla on the island yeah. was like smaller than the godzilla we see going through sea which is yep. so wonderfully raising the question are there multiple godzillas and there could be because we don't know how much big boy you godzilla know, just he's he's eating his vegetables he's sleeping well he's drinking his milk he's getting bigger you know i was gonna say we don't know the full effects of how nuclear war affected these yeah. waters and, and like it's <laughs> extremely obvious in this movie like they show the nuclear testing at bikini atoll and then godzilla wakes up again and then he goes to attack japan <laughs> like the uh it, it's not even a metaphor it's like hey this happened and here's godzilla again <laughs> i just wanted more godzilla so here's what i will say the original godzilla is like a thinly veiled metaphor about japan dealing with the destruction of the atomic right. bomb um and godzilla of course has become something so much larger than that there are there's godzilla action movies there's Four American Godzilla movies at this point. There's like slapstick of Godzilla like there's, having fun yes. with his son. There's Godzilla comedies. There's a kids movie like Godzilla kids movie. There's Godzilla cartoons like Godzilla. It, there, there are so many strains yeah. of this character. And I think what uh, Minus One does is that it elevates the dramatic side of things again. And Godzilla becomes a villain and a threat. Um, I also like I really like this recent strain of American Godzilla movies. I think they are all good. Um, I like Godzilla v Kong quite a bit too. And I'm looking forward to the new one, which looks silly and stupid, just like the other ones often have been. But and it looks what, amazing. Yeah, and exactly. And so this was uh, like Yamazaki was trying to take Godzilla back to his roots, his dramatic right. and metaphorical roots. And so Godzilla can be a lot of things, and you're yes. allowed to have a preference for action Godzilla or comedy Godzilla no. or like drama and Godzilla. And, and for me, this like struck a chord. That, that's but but that's also why when I see how epic Godzilla is, I do wish that we had seen a little bit more because you introduce him as being epic so early on in the film. Again, this is a movie that I really really like. This is a movie that I really really like, and I I will say from the moment I see Godzilla, I'm like. Need him again. 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 I, I think there's a, a healthy amount of Godzilla in this movie, and also I cried way more tears than I thought I was going to cry at the Godzilla minus one. I'm movie. dead inside, so I just don't cry. I sobbed uh, almost literally. Um, I really. I'm not dead I was, inside. I have heart. I was uh, losing control. Uh, I saw this on my birthday too, which I saw Napoleon earlier in the day, and this redeemed my birthday movie experience. Christian, we now move on to your number two, which is also my number six. It is. So number two is a movie that is written by David Hemmingson, and it is directed by Alexander Payne, and it is The Holdovers. The Holdovers is um, a movie about small acts that detail the worth of humanity. It is a movie 
that is set in a boys' uh, boarding school over winter break between 1970 and 1971 about a boy played by Dominic Sessa who is, quote-unquote, held over. He can't go home over the break. His parents are not there to pick him up. He stays there with a professor played by Paul Giamatti, and he stays there with the cook played by Divine Joy Randolph. It is a movie about being kind to one another and about being lonely and seeing that there are other people that are lonely in the world and being able to connect with them. It is about not judging others because you don't know what their past brought them there and their past made them kind of bitter, but reckoning with their past making them bitter doesn't fully represent what it is that they did now. It is a movie that was shot on digital and yet looks like it was... It, there's emulation to make it look like it was shot on film and it is one of the most gorgeous... It, it, it might be the most gorgeous looking movie of the year. Well, it, it, it's, it's among them for sure. Um, it, it, it's a movie about being ashamed of what it is that is making you so sad um, and finding other people that you can share that shame with. Not so that they can also be ashamed, but so that they can lift part of that burden off of you. It's a movie about knowing what it means to dream and being okay dreaming small dreams because it doesn't matter how big the dream is. It's important just to follow it. Um, it's also a great Christmas movie. It, it's cozy. It's one of the most it, – it, it's so cozy. There's so much snow and there's so much like warmth and being inside of these small spaces and being inside of these small spaces with humans who want to share that space with you. It's quite honestly a masterpiece. And it's a movie that I have, have seen more than once now. Um, and each time I am floored by how it's very difficult to spoil because, again, it's them being able to celebrate Christmas together, taking a trip to Boston, uh, watching a movie, watching uh, what, what, what's Newlywed Game, watching the Newlywed Game, um, seeing the countdown to the New Year's, and kind of just sharing into these experiences that you would normally think you would be sharing with family, but when that is unavailable to you, how it is the human need to be in connection with each other comes through in, again, kindness and also chemistry because all three of them are, are, are th this is the acting ensemble of the year because all three of these characters are 100% going for it and amazing. Um, I know that you saw it recently. I know that you enjoyed it. Now, Christian, yes. I want to say, this is why you cram. Because I saw this on New Year's Day, which to me felt perfect. Uh, not only because there is... This There's does New take Year's. them yeah, through the holidays. There yeah. is New Year's scenes. But um, New Year's Day is kind of a weird day. You know, it's, it's a day, like a lot of people are committing to New Year's resolutions. I am already doing very poorly with mine. Um, and there is a, a sort of weird sense of the holidays are over that and you know that christmas spirit that i was feeling is gone i can't keep listening to michael buble's christmas album anymore i have to move past christmas and get into january <laughs> i have to start a new year all over again and the melon the melancholy at the center of the holdovers matched with the vibe that you were talking about this evocation of the 70s and, and both the emulation on the film but also just the the small tone or not tone the ambition of the, these three people in a boarding school over the holidays like uh, focusing on acting and writing over ostentatious filmmaking and visual effects like it just felt so right to be watching this on new year's day um 
and yes, like this ensemble is fantastic. I think obviously like Paul Giamatti is an actor people are very familiar with, and he, to me, like in what I've seen him in, has never been better than he is here. And so acerbic and harsh as this incredibly intelligent, uh, you know, teacher at this boarding school who also has real hurts that could have been brought out of him so like ham-handedly and awkwardly, but are naturally teased out over the yeah. course of the entire movie. And the same goes for Dominic Sessa, who was a an absolute revelation. This is his debut film performance. He's not appeared like he was selected by an audition for students at the school where they shot, and he just, he became the second lead of the movie. Um, it, it like and again matching Giamatti like bar for bar, like blow for blow on the sarcastic, um, like sarcastic side of things, but bringing also that warmth to him with some of the other students earlier on in the movie, and um, you know. This, this boyish, like, naivete about the world in some ways, or, like, this optimism, this hopefulness but that he feels as a young man that... Also, though, Divine Joy Randolph, who is and a yes. woman who has experienced tragedy. And what I think is so cool about her character is that she has lost her son in the yes. Vietnam War, and that is addressed very early on in the movie. It's not a spoiler to say. And her, like, very obvious tragedy... Grief, yes. Grief. Everybody knows, if you lose a child, that is sad ten times out of ten. And her very obvious and on-the-surface tragedy becomes a vessel for uh, for Paul Hunnam, Giamatti's character, and for Angus Tully, the student, to reveal more about themselves and what's made them the way that they are uh, by like them either showing warmth or receiving it from her amidst her tragedy is what sort of causes them to open up too. And I don't think it's the kind of performance where Divine Joy Randolph is like the nice black lady that helps the white boys feel better about themselves. Like they're they're all like rich and realized characters. If I have any like problem with the movie, I would have wanted even more time with with Mary Divine Joy Randolph's character because she's so good. Um, but even so, like the time that we get with the three of them, or you know when they pair off and go two by two, or even like when we see each of the characters alone, like they're rich and realized characters made by these amazing performances and like David Hemmingson's fantastic script. Fully made out to not be perfect. In, in fact, uh, Giamatti's character is fully made out to be someone that a lot of people hate. And, and not just dislike, but actually hate. Which is something Angus says to him in the, in the movie. <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, Angus's character fully made out to be a dickhead. And yet... By not fully presenting them as likable people, you do start to see – this is a movie so interested in being like, for people who are broken, what exactly is it that led you there? And you see yourself a lot in these characters because they're not perfect, and it is asking you to examine, you're broken too. How is it that you got there? Do you have the friends that they have? Do you feel alone? It, it, it's very introspective. It is also holding up a mirror to society, and it, it, it's a movie that's just so brimming with hope that, hey, guess what? There are people, uh, there, there's a family if you find, there are people out there, and guess what? You can be also kind to other individuals. Um, I, I think, too, like, one of my favorite realizations I've had about the movie is that Hunnam is a history teacher. He is obsessed with Greek and Roman antiquity, and we see him in the movie, like, he when he talks about history, he teaches Angus, you know, we look at the past to learn about the present. 100%. And in the same way, it is Hunnam finally opening up about his past that allows him to reconcile with his present 
But even like even going up another level, Alexander Payne as the director, Hemmingson as the writer, um, which like I heard an interview with Payne, it's just like his idea that he took to Hemmingson and they put yeah. together all that. So Payne as the filmmaker, bringing this like very classical style and form for a movie yep. into the present to like to allow us to experience that just this like movie made by a human with humans about people feeling human emotions uh, to continue to teach us and entertain us and lift us up today like this this classical story in the present day i love this one it lived up to every expectation i'm so glad i was able to see it before we sat down because of course it was my number six as it was your number two all right and now my number two let's go to your number two yes not a surprise folks it's john mc chapter four i love when john mc shoots guys in the face let's go this movie stuck with me because it came out in march and i'm not letting it go it came out in march right i think so that's we we went with paul Shout out to Paul Yoder. We love Paul Yoder here at the Cinnamon Tap Podcast. But yeah, John Wick Chapter 4, it absolutely rules. All of this movie is my scene of the year because every action scene in this movie is the best scene of the year. Um, John Wick Chapter 4 rules. It's amazing. I don't need to like continue to litigate why. <laughs> it's amazing. I liked I, it when they drove around the Arc de Triomphe. I like, I like that too, Christian. I like when they drove around the Arc de Triomphe. I like when they fought up the stairs and then they fell down. He had to fight up the stairs again. And then he fell down again. Yeah. <laughs> I love when they fight at Sakura Gora. This amazing duel. I like when they go uh, overseas into... I like when they go to that museum in Japan, which yes. is actually a hotel, but it's basically a museum. Yeah, yeah, and they're fighting in that. Like, More, more seriously, I love action movies, obviously. I, I love genre film. And John Wick Chapter 4 is my favorite action movie of the year and one of my favorites of recent memory. I love what Keanu Reeves brings to these movies, not just as an actor reading lines, but as a, an action star bringing his own, like doing his own stunt work, handling the, the tools he uses via the gun that he throws at a henchman or, or a suit that he ducks behind because it's bulletproof and that's how ridiculous we are in this world. But I love the supporting cast around him, especially the new characters played by Donnie Yen and Brina Sawayama. And, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. I'm forgetting his name. Um, yep, my bad. But uh, the guy who plays the tracker, sorry, I forgot your name. Uh, he is a great dog, and he bonds with John Wick about having a great dog. Uh, I mean, Hiroyuki Sonata's in this movie. We talked about him on the tappies because uh, we loved him in Ringu. I mean, it's just like... So many actors I love. So many incredible action scenes. John Wick continues to be uh, top class in the action game. And this movie has stuck with me since March. I've just enjoyed thinking about it since then. One of my favorites of the year. Love it. Christian, we now go to your number one movie of the year, which also happens to be my number four. Uh, uh, Certainly one that I am a huge fan of as well. But why don't you go ahead and talk about your number one? Because it was directed by Joaquin Dos Santos, Ken Powers, Justin K. Thompson. It was written by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, and Dave Callahan. This is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. This movie is awesome. This movie is incredible. It is a multiverse story where every single universe that you go to is actually a fleshed out place and has a different design. It's incorporating so many different animation styles because it's incorporating so many different artistic styles that are actually used in comics. It follows, yes, Mal Morales as he discovers that there is a multiverse and he discovers that there is something that is canon that happens to every single person who takes on the mantle of Spider-Man. And he thinks that that's BS. That why does it mean that you having powers automatically denotes that tragedy should befall you? And what his fight against that canon event um, should imply. It has an amazing supporting cast. And every single supporting cast member leaves such an impression on this movie. 
uh, everyone from Gwen to we have a Prowler that comes back in this movie. We have all the different Spider-Mans, everyone from Spider-Man 2099, who's played by Oscar Isaac, to we have uh, uh, we have like the classic Spider-Man. We have the Spider-Man that's be- played by Jake um, Jake Johnson. We have um, Peter B. Parker. We have P- yeah <laughs> Peter B. Parker. Um, the, the okay, look, the, this movie is focused on destiny. And what does it mean to, despite how paradoxical this sounds, to choose your destiny? I, it, it's the wrestling of like it, free will versus determinism. Like yes, shaping and changing your own destiny versus like letting uh, letting something sad happen because it like it, it is what forms you. You know, like wrestling with these questions is is legitimately deep. And far deeper than a lot of the superhero stories that we get on film these uh, days. I'm I'm gonna steal this from Watch Mojo, the 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 um, YouTube channel, because they said some people they, they specifically said some people are saying that uh, across the Spider Verse pushes the limits of animation. We need to understand that there are no limits to animation. Instead, this discovers how expansive human imagination can be and that is one of the perfect ways to put this to be able to create all of these different ones look every single frame of this movie is a painting every single frame of this movie has the greatest use of color and is dovetailed beautifully by the greatest emotional scene the the, the dialogue here is poetry the dialogue amongst all of the characters is deep and also funny and it, it helps if you know some Spider-Man lore, but also even if you don't know anything about Spider-Man whatsoever, you know what it means to lose a loved one, or you know what it means to have responsibility placed on you. You know what it means to have that loss of someone mean that you need to take on some of the things that they did in their life. And and and, and the conversations and, and the 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 um the the. Double entendres, the 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 subtlety, the subversiveness, the the depth of everything is incredible. Honestly, I did not know where this movie was going for much of its run. I didn't know what universe they would go into next. I didn't know how else they would discover the spot. By the way, the spot, Jason Schwartzman's spot. Um, truly amazing voice work the spot is terrifying by the end yeah and it's so funny because he starts off as a comically ridiculous character yeah he had like with his like his ridiculous power of creating spots where he can sort of like travel across time like space and time and and, like there's this amazing fight scene early on between him and miles morales as they're like jumping through spots and like he can throw one up with miles in a completely separate area and like punch him from like 100 yards away you know like it's it's not only is he a great character the great vocal performance who's become a very threatening villain that i'm excited to see how they resolve it in the you know in the sequel to this movie but also perfect for what they're trying to do here where they are trying to push the the capabilities of animation at least in american film like to innovate and push and go beyond what we've normally done in american mainstream american animation and they have this character who's breaking all the rules everywhere that he goes and like 
it, it, again, it's not like groundbreaking uh, thematic, like tying a, a villain into your theme or whatever, but it is just so well done, especially when compared to some of the other villains of superhero movies we've gotten recently that have not been as compelling uh, and more in live action spaces. Like this, like the spot is great. Also in terms of things being meta, this, this, is, like, this is how meta also works. Because you probably have heard of a Spider-Man story and the origin for Spider-Man is very well known where he had an uncle. Um, because of his, his irresponsibility, the, that uncle dies. And in which case he is burdened with choosing to do, well, to, to save whoever he can within that. Um, if you have a story that is as well known as that, like, why the F do we need to keep hearing it again? Um, and this is wrestling with that as well. Um, in, in a world in which there are many Spider-Man and they've all experienced tragedy, why would another Spider-Man also want to experience that? Why would he just sit back and accept that? And it, it's it's such an active movie. In, in every single one, you don't just see him wrestling against canon events, but you also see him... Uh, but they're not also not called canon events. I forget what they're, they're called. You see just how much his mind is like breaking in, in, in terms of needing to accept what people are telling him like to basically sit back and relax and also they are called canon events by the way they are called canon <laughs> events oh okay um and what he wants and, and, and it is about determinism it's, it's also greatly directed uh, smart witty funny memorable um, Daniel Kaluuya's character is in here. I was going to say, if you didn't, Spider-Punk is the, one of the sickest characters I've seen in any animated movie ever. Absolutely great matching of vocal performer and uh, incredibly animated character where he's as a punk who breaks the rules and so they broke all of the rules in the way that they animated that character. Just ridiculous stuff. And, and it's also... Look, I, there are a lot of small movies that I liked on this, uh, on, on, on my list that had a small or ambitions or at least were dealing with more contained situations and I loved all of those. This is a movie where the ambition was like 80 feet above the ceiling and I do think it went even above that in its execution. And all those folks out there who think that this movie doesn't count or whatever because it's half a movie, part one sucked, uh, can I introduce you to the concept of sequels, folks? Have you heard of Empire Strikes Back? Because it seems like you haven't. Maybe perhaps The Fellowship of the Ring or The Two Towers? Like, uh, this is... Dune Part 1. Dune Part 1. This is its own movie. Even though, yes, it ends on a cliffhanger, it is not, like, an incomplete story. It is a... It is, yeah, I, I think that's a silly argument. Uh, I mean, this is one of the best movies of the year, bar none. I am so glad that we've gotten to talk about it multiple times now on this podcast. It is uh, treasure, and I can't wait to see how it concludes when the sequel inevitably comes out. Christian, my number one is also your number seven. I think it will not come as a surprise to people who've been listening to the show and were wondering where this movie was. That movie is, of course, Oppenheimer, which is written and directed by the one and only... Christopher Nolan, starring Killian Murphy as Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. Um, okay, we, we've spoken a lot about Oppenheimer. We, yes. We've spoken about Oppenheimer multiple times on this podcast. Yes. Um, let's not have fun. Oppenheimer is also kind of ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, I have become death, destroy of words, as Warren's pew mounts him. Yeah. Pretty great stuff. 
I mean, what? This is, the, I, I will say, this is the best dialogue Christopher Nolan has ever written. Yes, it absolutely is. I mean, the, the amount of, like, zingers and one-liners that he fits into this movie of scientists yammering about physics is impressive. And the I, the like, dialogue is so active. The dialogue is the action. And again, like, when you think about all of the things that made this three-hour historical drama about the construction of the atomic bomb that is mostly, as many people have pointed out, People talking in rooms have made it so thrilling, and the kind of movie that made almost a billion dollars at the global box office, it is that fantastically active dialogue where Nolan is creating this rapid sense of pace and by the, the way sound. the actors are talking to each other. The sound. And the lighting when they're in the small tiny room. and I the, mean, like it the, just... Yes. But more importantly, the, the Ludwig Ronson's music, which is driving Amazing. most of the narrative. So incredible. Jennifer Lame's editing, which makes this three-hour oh, movie fly Jen- Jennifer Lame is, 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 is one of the best editors ever. But like, on the strength of this movie alone, she ha- it is incredible work from her. And... Like, the ensemble here is absolutely bursting with lovable actors, um, uh, but it's built on the back of Killian Murphy and his incredible lead performance and Robert Downey Jr. as Louis Strauss, his political, uh, what becomes his political antagonist. And I've actually loved Downey's performance uh, a little bit more each time I've returned to the movie. I love the little the little uh, ways where he shows off Strauss's internal arrogance and the way that he never gets over... Uh, slights, what he perceives as slights addressed towards him, and the way that Oppenheimer at least is portrayed in this movie as being able to look past those things for a greater goal without, of, of course, being uh, saddled by his own arrogance and, and much of the third hour of this movie is the deliberation over his security clearance which puts his legacy in the in the crosshairs and you see the ways that he wrestles with the <laughs> moral scruples as Roger Rob so calls him out on with during, what he did and what he gave to the world as the leader of this project. One of the greatest things is that during these interrogation scenes, they keep saying, you're not on trial. No one's on trial. This isn't a trial. And I'm like, bro, everyone's on trial. Everyone uh, knows he's on trial. Everyone yeah. knows he's on trial and the duplicity of that. Um, and also the fact that also, like, uh, Oppenheimer is portrayed definitely as being a womanizer, definitely as sidelining women and as sidelining other people. And as having an ego, he's a guy who has an ego who's trying to pretend like he doesn't have an ego, which is 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 one of those where, I mean, he did direct the Manhattan Project. That being said, he also seems like a tough hang. That being said, he also seems like a wuss. Killian Murphy is truly, truly delivering incredible stuff within this film. Um, he um, he is my favorite perform- male lead performance of the year. Uh, and the movie is great, it, and it's so rewatchable. Uh, it is far more rewatchable than any three-hour historical drama has a right to be. Um, uh, this has been locked in as my number one movie of the year. I really struggled making my list because some of the movies in my 11 through 20 I love as much as movies that make my top 10 in any other given year. I wrestled with this, but I never. I always knew my number one was going to be Oppenheimer. I we saw. It, I saw it three times in theaters. You saw it four. Um, it, I slept for two of those. You slept for two of those. But it is. It might. Like, I don't know if it's my favorite Christopher Nolan movie yet, because uh, I really do love, love, love Nolan. But one of his best movies for sure. It's an absolute masterpiece. An incredibly entertaining three-hour historical drama with absolutely enormous ambitions that it somehow achieves. 
Uh, we could talk far more about you know the politics of the movie or the even just like the themes of the movie and how they're explored within the life of uh, Robert Oppenheimer. But we've talked about it many times before on this podcast, and we're well past two hours in terms of recording time. So we are at two hours and ten minutes. Nobody's surprised. Oppenheimer is my number one film of the year, also on your top ten list, Christian. So we did it. We finally ranted about our top ten movies of the year. Christian, go ahead and read back your list for people so they can get a quick reminder before we get out here. Sure. I'm going to need your help. I don't have numbers for some of these. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. Uh, okay, lovely. Uh, my number 10 is Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. My number 9, Saltburn. My number 8, Fingernails. My number 7, Oppenheimer. My number 6, Past Lives. My number 5, Anatomy for Fall. My number 4, Scream 6. My number 3, Maestro. My number 2, The Holdovers. My number 1, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And my number 10 was Killers of the Flower Moon, number 9, Bottoms, 8, The Iron Claw, 7, The Zone of Interest, 6, The Holdovers, 5, Anatomy of a Fall, 4, Across the Spider-Verse, 3, Godzilla minus 1, 2, John Wick Chapter 4, and number 1, Oppenheimer. Uh, I do want to give a special honorable mention to The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, which is Wes Anderson's lead-off short in his Roald Dahl adaptations for Netflix, which I did have in my top 10 at number 2, because... It is an absolute masterpiece of, of Andersonian design and ingenuity. Christian got mad at me for putting it on there, and I ultimately took it off of my own volition to fit on more features because we normally talk feature-length movies on this podcast, and obviously I've struggled enough to make my list as it was. So a shout-out to my guy Wes Anderson. Christian, any honorable mentions that like did not come up somehow yet that you wanted to mention? Nah, I'm good with my list. Uh, the Boy in the Heron absolutely ruled. Go high. I Miyazaki. like. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I liked The Boy in the Heron. I, I, I did like it. I, 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 I like. I, that's my twenty-one, and I'm like, how, how does this movie end up as my number twenty-one? Twenty twenty-three, Christian. What an absolutely phenomenal year for movies. Incredible. I am so delighted. I can't wait to. Uh, honestly, like as weird as it is, I'm excited for the Oscars because I feel like I'm just gonna win because I love so many of the movies that are gonna be in contention. That even if like Oppenheimer loses in some category there's a high chance it goes to another movie that I love um so yeah like I love this year I just I can't wait to even like look back on this year when we <laughs> like, do our top of the decade top of the decade yeah it's gonna it's gonna be great Christian and 2024 it'll be different that's for sure uh but hey here's here's to it here's to 2024 here's to it and Christian, we are going to kick off 2024 on this podcast with a very unusual uh, <laughs> keg that we will be tapping. Uh, perhaps, uh, say, a cask, uh, a cask of wine uh, that once was water and has been turned into wine. Because to kick off January here on the podcast, in recognition of The Book of Clarence, which is James Samuel's new film coming out January 12th, we are going to be doing... January with, with Jesus! Jesus. Uh, you can tell who came up with this one, folks, because it was me! We are going to be looking at some cinematic depictions of uh, the founder of Christianity, shall we say, uh, looking at the life of Jesus Christ on film, and looking at some lighthearted depictions, some very serious depictions, and seeing how we feel about that. I, I have a question. Yeah. Are we doing Life of Brian? You're, yeah. Yeah, we sure are. Okay, cool. <laughs> A little spoiler, not spoiler, but teaser for you there, listeners. But we will be kicking off with somebody who was just mentioned on this podcast, Paul Yoder, friend of the show. We've already called in his services to kick off the year. And we'll be looking at a movie from somebody who has already been mentioned on this podcast, and that is Martin Scorsese, his controversial The Last Temptation of Christ. A movie that I have not seen, but it features I have not seen either. Willem Dafoe as Jesus. So I'm really excited to, to see that. And to wade into a movie that uh, is well regarded by some but was a, a massive 
uh, source of controversy at the time. Should be a very intriguing way to kick off a year, a uh, new year of cinema on tap. So, Christian, I can't wait to get to it. Uh, the Last Temptation of Christ is rentable anywhere. I don't think it's streaming right now, folks. So check it out on Prime or maybe from your local library and keep up with us because we're talking about it next week with Paul Yoder. And folks, that finally is our show. So if you've hung around with us for all two hours and more, we love you so much. We thank you for listening. We hope you had a great time and that some of your favorite movies of 2023 got their fair, their fair share, excuse me, their fair share of airtime here on the show. Of course, there are a few things that you can do to support the show going into the new year. Namely, number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review if applicable. It helps us reach new listeners and grow on those platforms, and we just sincerely appreciate the support coming in that way. We've uh, gained a few more five-star reviews on Spotify, which I, like, that is insane to me, so just thank you for doing that. Um, those of you People folks are who listening. Have, yeah, to those of you folks who have... Uh, reviewed and rated recently like gosh thank you it really means a lot um, you can also send us an email uh, cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com if your favorite movie somehow didn't come up on this podcast let us know we'd love to shout it out here on the show if you're a huge fan of Zoe 102 if you're a huge fan of Zoe 102 and you want to give Jamie Lynn her, uh, <laughs> her, her uh, just defense that she deserves let us know. Um, and, and of course, if there is a particular cinematic depiction of Jesus or even like a biblical ethic, something like the Ten Commandments that's not explicitly about Jesus, but like is from that genre, we'd love to hear it from you as we get into this month looking at cinematic depictions of Jesus. So that is cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd. We are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. I'm going to make my uh, top 10 list on Letterboxd as well, so you can check it out and yell at me in the comments for forgetting your favorite movie. Christian, I'm going to guess you don't have any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home, right? I bought some books. Good job, Christian. We're watching movies on this podcast, but we're, we're reading books in our spare time. That's my New Year's resolution that I'm not doing well with already. It's, it's to read every day. And so far, I have read uh, one of the four days in 2024. But I'm going to go home and I'm going to read, folks. So hold me to that. Can you, can you read Dune? I, I have offered to give that back to you many times, Christian. You've been at my apartment and I've offered it to you and you said, nah, that's fine. So I read a, I read a good chunk of it. <laughs> Actually... Maybe I should read it. Another part two is coming out. I'll see how our guy Denny compare, you know, compares. Anyway, folks, it's been a it's been a long one here on Cinema on Tap. So thanks for hanging with us. 2024. Here we go. And until next time, this has been Cinema on Tap. Thanks for listening. <laughs>